Coming up, it's Counterculture with Marie Buskey. A look into the world of critical social justice, woke culture, and more on RCR. Reality Check Radio. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057, that's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. People are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all this separation, do we end up bringing people together again? And what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's been ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behaviour and patterns of behaviour? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand. What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated. And, you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up. Welcome to Counterculture on Reality Check Radio. I'm your host, Marie Bosky, and this is the place where we discuss the issues through a cultural lens and how ideologies are impacting every facet of our everyday lives. What's been dished up on today's show? Well, a chat with Dr. David Kerman, co-founder of the Israel Institute of New Zealand. We'll discuss the synergies between Israel and New Zealand and his petition to try and stop the New Zealand government's funding of anti-Semitic education in U.S in operated schools. I then welcome back Helen Houghton, co-leader of the New Conservative Party and former teacher who's been working towards gender education awareness in Kiwi schools and what to expect with Pride Week coming up. We also hear about what it's like for a student in a school with an active gender program as part of the school culture. Marty Gibson will also be along for our roundup of legacy media stories of the week and I'll finish things off with the woke word of the week. But firstly, let's get to some of your feedback. I tell you what, you've been keeping the email inbox and the text machine busy over the last week. And here is just a snippet of some of the feedback that we've received. Hi, I'm loving your shows. Tomorrow I'll be helping some promotion in the Christchurch CB with the cardboard cutouts. I've been amazed at how many awake people are also Christian or spiritual. Lately I've been reading books of Rabbi Jonathan Kahn, which are amazing. It would be great if you could interview him or any others who are bringing what's happening today in line with ancient prophecies, or even why churches have 
laid down in compliance rather than standing up and pushing back against the woke agenda, which is clearly against the wisdom of ancient teachings. And that is from Peter. That is a really great suggestion, Peter, and uh, we will certainly hunt something like that out. I did have a conversation with Ian Cummings right back at the beginning of Counterculture, and I have been exploring some of the elements around Christianity in terms of wokeism in general. So do check out that uh, interview with Ian. Also the interview with Carrie Smith as well. Uh, we talked, um, she's a very devout Christian and we talk a little bit about her faith and the ideology too at the end of that interview. You may find that really interesting. Uh, this one is from the text machine. I'm identifying as a very concerned older woman. I was a tomboy through and through, even to the point of standing up to urinate. Not easy. And if I'd been told back then that I could have been a boy, I would have been all over the moon. However, I'm a very proud mother of two young men. My point is, nobody has the right to take away of the joy of being a mother, especially if you're born female. I mean, you could have been describing me right there. So thank you so much for that feedback. Surely parents have the right to sue both government, inside out, boards of trustees, and possibly teachers for pushing what has rightly been classified as trans-conversion therapy in schools. Love to hear your view on this. Uh, that is certainly something probably that the Legal Hub, I should actually pass this on to the Legal Hub team, they may have a look at that. I think Helen may touch a little bit on this in our chat. You know what, I'm going to pass this on to the Legal Hub team and see what they think. This one is from Catherine. Listening to the interview today about the gender stuff, I'm now an old school transsexual and I agree with your interviewee 100%. I warned about this movement for self-declaration 20 years ago when it started and now it's government policy. All the filters that we had before have been swept aside in the greater welter of wokeness. The old system worked and made sure that only real transsex people entered the process and that's how it should be. Many of these young women have been conjoled into taking hormones, getting surgery and will end up sad and suicidal. In the rare cases of the past where someone learned the narrative and they lied their way through the filters, the results were nearly always fatal. I predict a terrible disaster in coming years. Transsexuality occurs in one in, one in about 30,000 births. So in New Zealand, at any one time, there ought to be less than 170 trannies, including small children and oldies like myself. I'm 80. In my case, and like all genuine cases, genetic and origin, I was born with partial androgen insensitivity syndrome. Complicated to detail here, but certainly not a mental illness. Really happy to talk about it. And cheers, Catherine. Hey, Catherine, thank you so much for that feedback. I think you're right. There is going to be a terrible disaster in coming years. I think you've uh, called it completely there. Uh, someone loving Martin Langford, 100% um, Democracy New Zealand. Thank you so much for that. This is from the text machine. Marie, it was easy for the Christchurch shooter to get a license for his guns uh, because of a law change instigated by Jacinda. From memory, the law changed the previous December. Love your program. Thank you so much. This one is from Juliana. Um, Ate Marie, thank you so much to yourself and Marg. Teachers are being as bullied as children by the ideology's grasp backed by the governmental directives across the ministries of health, social development in conjunction with that of the inside out curriculum written with education ministry funds and approbation. Parents rely upon integrity and intelligence in their children's educators and trust their duty of care. 
but that has been effectively undermined by prescriptions on how the sexual education curriculum must be integrated across the curriculum. I taught across the board, primary to tertiary over the decades, and have worked in mental health. Full disclosure, I'm now a member of the Speak Up for Women and LGB Alliance to try and co contribute to resist gender education with research. I'm not sure if you put up a bibliography, but I can recommend Hannah Barnes's book, Time to Think, which is clear about the abuses of over 30 years by GIDS at Tavistock, lack of child safeguarding, also Sheila Jeffrey's Gender Hurts, which has peer-reviewed articles on medical and surgical solutions which harm confused youth. Both are available through the library service. So keep putting the reality out there. Thank you very much. This is from Juliana. Juliana, I've already put those books on my reading list. So thank you so much for your letter. Hi, Marie. In New Zealand, uh, we have warehouse selling Disney Pride products to children and donating 5% of proceeds to Inside Out uh, and people who are indoctrinating our children in New Zealand schools. That's from Linda. Actually, it's interesting you mentioned that, Linda, because I've actually pulled a piece out of the paper for Media Matters on this. So I will cover those off. So keep the feedback coming. If you want to send us some feedback, inbox at realitycheck.radio is the email and 2057 is the text number. Welcome back to Counterculture here on RCR with Marie. Last week I talked about the importance of parents speaking up and getting involved to have a voice for the future of our children. It's daunting, I get it. It's not easy having confronting conversations with, with authority figures that we've been conditioned to trust, but are now no longer able to advocate for your child, even if their beliefs are aligned with yours. That job now solely rests with us, as it should. I had a lovely weekend as my son and his friends converged to celebrate his 17th birthday. A collection of young men laughing, talking smack, going to the Lego brick show, catching a film, coming back to ours for homemade burgers, more laughter, more joshing, essentially just having fun. This is what matters, allowing our kids to be kids, forge bonds and not be forced to grow up too fast. I asked the boys about Pride Week at the respective schools they attend. In all cases, the schools only gave a cursory nod, a few posters and likely a mention in house classes. The boys had zero interest in celebrating pride. As one said, don't we just accept everyone for who they are every day? Pride has been hijacked, hijacked by those with ideological agendas, hijacked by those wanting to make a quick buck. Just look at the New Zealand resources for pride schools. Many of the activities focus on fundraising for more ideological education, the pernicious distraction away from what is really important in our schools, allowing our children to learn and gather skills that they need to survive and thrive in the adult world. I'm heartened to see that the boys in my sphere are aware, but certainly not tapped in. But the same can't be said for their female friends. As we've seen with the Posey Parker visit and the work done by Wahini like Diane Landy, women are under attack and the battleground is starting in our schools. Being a teenage girl is tough enough without all the social contagion that is trans ideology and critical social justice. These girls have been captured and indoctrinated earlier and earlier. The anxiety is immense and stealing childhoods away from our daughters especially. So this Pride Week, I want all parents to have at least one courageous conversation with another parent. A problem shared is a problem halved, and together we can help re-establish a balance, facilitate change, and give back to our sons and daughters the childhood they deserve. Not the one 
that is prescribed by our state. What I want to achieve with RCR is conversation. And I think we have lost the art of conversation. With RCR, I just hope that people can learn that we can all be different, we can have our own opinions, have our own views, and have those conversations in a respectful way. Because respect needs to be given, it needs to be earned, and I think that we can prove that people of all diverse perspectives, ages, opinions, can have a platform, and we can work and talk together. And so that's what I hope we get to achieve with RCR. Just independent thought, alternative thought, and I, I expect that I will be castigated by many people for offering different opinions. But you know, as I've said before, there is no such thing as a wrong opinion. Opinions are like noses. Everybody's got one. The exchange of views, fair debate, no cancelling, no interrupting, no aggressive responses. We want to hear what people have to say. Whatever side you're on. And the listener, the consumer, with that information, can make of it what they will. That is the mission. It's a good mission. This is Counterculture with Marie Busky. Wednesdays at 10 a.m. on Reality Check Radio. You are with Counterculture here on Reality Check Radio. I am Marie, and my guest this morning is Dr. David Kerman, co-director of the Israel Institute of New Zealand. Good morning. How are you? Good morning, Marie. I'm well. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. I'm really delighted to have you along this morning because one of the questions that I have always found a conundrum is why is Israel so misunderstood? <laughs> I wish I, I wish I fully knew the answer to that. Um, it, it would put me out of my volunteer role, and I'd be very pleased about that. To me, there's there's two main drivers for that. The one is, unfortunately, it's a continuation of thousands of years of persecution of Jews, um, and it just so happens that in the 21st century, those same ideas are projected onto the Jewish state um, rather than individual Jews or synagogues as they were previously. So I think there's a lot of baggage, if you like, um, that has has momentum and carried forward. Uh, and so people are primed to believe the uh, untruths and slurs and slogans. Um, and I think the other reason is that there's concerted efforts uh, around the world and in New Zealand to demonize and delegitimize uh, and apply double standards to Israel for various reasons, uh, one of which is the baggage that I, I just mentioned. I think there's also political reasons that people have. And I think people, some people are, are just blind to reality and looking for a cause to jump on. So uh, I think there are myriad reasons why there is such a misunderstanding. Um, but anyone who is truly interested and has the ability uh, to, to go and visit Israel uh, will quickly realize that a lot of what is projected onto uh, the nation is it's not really true at all. Mm. Uh, it's a thriving liberal democracy. It has its problems, but there is some tremendous technological advances. Um, there is a, a lively culture uh, where Jews and Arabs, for the most part, live wonderfully together. And there is lively debate. And there are all sorts of different groups that live harmoniously, for the most part, uh, just like any other nation. And you look around the countries that border Israel, and you don't see nearly the same degree uh, or any degree of freedom. So I, I don't I don't know if I have all the answers, but uh, it certainly is misunderstood. 
Because I interviewed Naomi Wolf here a few weeks ago, I had a question in regards to the COVID lockdowns and that in Israel. There's so many similarities between Israel and New Zealand in terms of size, the fact that you've got these incredible democracies and a mixture of peoples. And they also took a very strident approach to COVID in the COVID oh, lockdowns. Much more strict than New Zealand, actually. Mm. There, there were periods where Israelis were not allowed to move more than 100 metres from their house. So there were some very strict COVID rules. Yeah, and I found that really intriguing because knowing a little about the Jewish history, I would have thought as a people that having their freedom curtailed so dramatically would be something that they would be a little bit more vocal about. And when when probed with that, she was very uncomfortable with the question, but she also then leaned on the Israeli state bad Palestinian good and, you know, referring to the West Bank as an open sort of, I think, an open prison is, is what she referred it to. And I thought, oh, this is interesting that she's gone in that direction. And she felt that, and in her words were, the oppressor became the oppressed. I'm not quite sure how that relates to COVID. Um, no, well, exactly. So how's Israel coming out the other side? As you said, they were very, very strident and they, in a way, the incubator and laboratory for the world um, during COVID. So a lot of work and medical work got done there. Are they now coming out and recovering economically or have they seen issues economically like we have here with debt or have they sort of managed to move and trade themselves through it? Uh, embarrassingly, I don't have the numbers to hand, um, but I think the picture is slightly more complicated because not only was there uh, um, intensive COVID uh, reaction, and you know, if we look back at that time, no one knew really how bad things were or what was going on, and um, and Israel took a, a very strong approach, um, not only with lockdown, but as, as you alluded to, doing deals with Pfizer to get early access to vaccines and etc. The political situation in Israel has also been. Uh, a bit of a roller coaster ride, uh, to say the least. There have been something like four or five elections in the last four or five years. Uh, and so there's been a lot of internal turmoil added to the mix. Uh, and then there are, of course, the external um, threats that haven't gone away. Recently, there's been, unfortunately, a rise in, in some terror attacks. Uh, a few months ago, there were thousands of rockets once again fired from Gaza. There are some differences as well. But from what I've seen, and I don't have the numbers, unfortunately, to hand to back this up, Israel's kind of back to normal, uh, mm. you know, as normal as it, as it has been. Just yesterday, I was reading that uh, there's been another two cancer breakthroughs at two of the universities. Um, industry is back on track. I think they're open to trade again. They're doing some interesting deals with neighboring countries and are now allowed to fly over Saudi Arabia. So there are some great developments going on all the time. Um, mm. I don't know how much the COVID, and I don't know how easy it would be to isolate that as an effect, has had any kind of lingering, uh, unfortunately, I'm not sure. After effects, yeah, because I mean, we've certainly had the lingering after effects here. So, and with there mm. being so many similarities, what are some of the similarities between New Zealand and Israel that can create opportunities, do you think? You mentioned a whole bunch of them. I think that the, the fact that we're both small countries, uh, Israel is one twelfth the geographic size of New Zealand. So that is about half the size of Canterbury for people to get that in their minds. Um, and not many people know that because when you think about Israel, you think of this massive place, um, but it's not as tiny. There's about nine, eight, nine million people. So it's double the population. But if you think about it, we're both liberal democracies um, that are essentially islands. So New Zealand's surrounded by water. Um, and Israel's surrounded by hostile or <laughs> hostile-ish um, nations. Uh, and so the kind of inventiveness and ingenuity are really stellar. And I think there's some great synergies as well, because New Zealand has 
remarkable natural resources and Israel has a strongly developed tech infrastructure. And so I think of the deals like CropX, where the engineering and systems approaches of Israeli entrepreneurs have merged with New Zealand agriculture and created a, a, an amazing company um, that's just gone through another $200 million Series B round, um, doing wonderful things to enhance crop growing. As just an example, there's huge synergies that we could exploit. It's a real shame that there's an Israeli embassy in New Zealand, but not a New Zealand embassy in Israel. So what are some of the biggest misconceptions that you strike with Kiwis? They range from almost the benign, where people think it's a constant war zone and um, to go over, you need to have a flak jacket and and drive around armoured vehicles. Um, but that's because what's presented in the news is largely when there is conflict. So there's there's that kind of impression. And then there are the more kind of nefarious impressions of this evil, greedy, child-murdering, apartheid kind of country, which as I said before, any anyone who gets on a, an airplane um, or even kind of reads widely uh, and is interested will find out that it, those are complete lies. So I think those are the the broad misunderstandings that people have. Mm. We had a letter that I read out in our feedback last week, and it was someone who had visited Israel early in the year. They had family there, and they said exactly that. They And one of the things she brought up was the whole Israeli-Palestinian relationship. I think one of the tropes that we get fed via media and other organisations is that what happens in Gaza and the West Bank and anyone that's Arab is completely cut off, as you said, in an apartheid situation. And she said that's not the case at all. She said, you know, Palestinians and or Arabs and um, Israelis are living and working alongside each other all the time. So what are, is that one of the biggest misconceptions between that relationship that you encounter? Yeah, I think so. Uh, it, it's fed, of course, by the slogans and, and the propaganda of apartheid state and evil child murderers, etc. Um, and all of those kind of demonizations that are leveled at Israel. Um, but you're right. I mean, there's there are borders because there is disputed territory and there is Israel proper. You're also right that plenty of Arabs seek work in Israel. Um, because it's better paid, there are better conditions, the the workers are, uh, have rights <laughs> in the companies and they cross the border every day to go to work and they're very thankful for that and it, it helps provide for their families and they return uh, in the evening. Plenty of, of Arabs do that. There are there was also the great story of SodaStream that had uh, a plant um, in some of the disputed territory and it was easier for Arabs to get to. Um, and they were very proudly on each of the, the bottles would say, made in Israel by Jews and Arabs working together. Um, and it was a wonderful place where the two people could really get to meet and exchange and learn about each other and foster peace. And unfortunately, uh, partly because of activist pressure, uh, the plant had to, to move and make it more difficult. The other really interesting thing on this point is if you look at any of the polling of Arab Palestinians and that ask them, would you prefer to live in Israel or in under the Palestinian Authority or Hamas, over 90% of them say, we would much prefer to live in Israel. So you just have to ask Arabs themselves. Don't take my word for it. I just noticed on your website, there was a story that's just popped up and it said, why supporting the Palestinian state at this time is a bad idea. Explain for our listeners why that is quite a complex situation going on there at the moment. It's an extremely complex situation. And that's part of the real sadness for me is, it's an extremely complicated, extremely long-standing conflict. And uh, some people outside of the context of that and with little skin in the game 
uh, decide to paint slogans on things and point fingers at one side uh, and kick up trouble and then think it's a really good idea to support only one side of the conflict in solidarity, they say. And one of the ways that they think is really the best to do that is to uh, acknowledge uh, or recognize the state of Palestine. Now, on the face of it, it seems like a good thing to do. And that's why a lot of people buy into it. But if you scratch a little bit deeper, there's a whole myriad questions that come out. What are the borders going to look like? And this is this is one of the reasons it's such an intractable um, conflict is because on at least five occasions, Israel has said, here's a plan. These are the borders that we can negotiate. We can move some of this land over here and you can have some of that so that we can work things around existing villages or natural phenomena. We want to work with you. And every single time, the Arab-Palestinian leadership has said no, not given a counter-proposal, and almost every single time there's been an increase in violence. So to think that someone outside of that those parties can come along and give the stamp and say this is how it should be is really a colonialist endeavour to draw the lines for uh, the states. But even if you take away that, you say, well, who's going to rule Palestine? Is it going to be Hamas that is currently in charge of the Gaza Strip? which is a designated terrorist organization in many countries, uh, and the military wing of it is a terrorist organization in New Zealand. It doesn't seem very sensible. Or is it going to be Fatah, which is the ruling group of the West Bank? Well, they have seriously low public opinion polls, which is the reason that there haven't been elections since about 2004. So the Palestinian people don't think that Fatah represents them, or Hamas to a certain degree. There's corruption that's rife uh, within that organization. So is this a good move to give them citizenship, uh, a statehood? It screams of an ignorant virtue signaling. Mm. Um, and I think actually the New Zealand government approach to this particular issue over many, 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 many years has been very consistent and very good. It has been that the New Zealand government supports a negotiated solution to the conflict. And what that means is both sides need to get together and negotiate. And there are, it's not just borders and it's not just leadership. Um, there are five main issues that need to be resolved. Uh, the problem is, as I mentioned before, every time Israel has said, here's a set of offers. So it's been up to 98% of the West Bank with some land swaps. And every single time the response has been no. With no counteroffer, with no counterproposal, with no other plan of how to go about it, without any sort of real negotiation. Sorry, has there been a reason given for the no? No, the, the kind of face value reason is uh, it's not good enough, basically. The the undercurrent of that is uh, we want all of the land from the river to the sea, which is the entirety of Israel and the West Bank and Gaza. But no, there, there, there hasn't really been a thorough reason. Otherwise, there would be a counterproposal. Mm. Uh, and the kind of the simple explanation is that the people who are in power benefit from the status quo. There's no mm. way that the Abbas family could have the billions of dollars that they have if they had a real state and had to protect their own borders and their own people and invest in the infrastructure and um, and do things that a, a real state needs to do. Yeah, it pays for them to actually perpetuate the conflict in order to line their own pockets. The other thing that it, it means or would mean is that in some way the Arab-Palestinian leadership would have to recognize Israel and mm. accept that 
uh, Jews are going to self-determine in part of their indigenous land. That's That really, if you dig far enough down, is the real reason. I mean, the fact that that some of the leaders can line their pockets with billions of dollars um, over the decades is is almost a cherry on the top for them. Mm. Um, but really, the the denial of the right of Jews to self-determine in part of their indigenous land is what underlies, really, um, the, the refusal to negotiate. Um, and as much has been said, uh, so, you know, again, don't take my word from it. Uh, listen to Arafat's speech from uh, Johannesburg. Uh, listen to what the leaders say in Arabic, not in English, because they give a different different message to the Western world. This is at, really at the heart of the conflict. And I guess to say then, oh, well, we'll just acknowledge the state doesn't address any of those other issues. It doesn't It doesn't help anyone. In fact, it, it rewards bad behavior. It's a misguided, in, in my strongly held opinion, uh, a very misguided approach to, to the topic. So let's talk about this uh, hate speech petition in schools. And that's what actually prompted us to reach out to you. Now, you tabled this to Simon O'Connor. What prompted you to actually create the petition to begin with? What was the catalyst? Sure. Well, uh, for a long time, New Zealand has been sending approximately a million dollars a year to an organisation called UNRWA, the United Nations Relief and Work Agency. It was established uh, just after Israel's War of Independence to look after the Arab-Palestinian refugees at the time. We can get into all sorts of discussions about the whys and wherefores of that. Um, but this organization has been around since then. Um, and about 60% of their budget goes towards education every single year. Now, their budget last year was $1.6 billion US dollars. Uh, so New Zealand's contribution is approximately 0.06% uh, of what they need to run. We, we're not really keeping them afloat. Let's put it that way. But we do contribute and we do politically support the organization because our Ministry of Foreign Affairs and our foreign minister uh, ministers have always been openly supportive of the work that UNRWA does. Now, for a long time, at least 20 years, there have also been reports that uh, UNRWA is teaching children in its schools to demonize Jews, to glorify terror and to reject peace. In about 2018, 2019, uh, we started to engage with MFAT to say, did you know that this was going on? Uh, here are publicly available reports going back to 2001 at least. Uh, what's your response to this? Um, and what we got back was uh, a lot of official speak. You know, we, we take this very seriously and UNRWA's got mechanisms in place to address this uh, and, and we're going to discuss it with member states and it's all very important. What we learnt from Official Information Act requests is that MFAT officials had never briefed a minister on the issues, even though it's been publicly discussed and reported on. When we presented our report on that issue and other issues with this organisation, including corruption and including hiring people who incite violence online, we got told that they've got mechanisms to, to take care of all of that. Still, we didn't see anything that briefed a minister. So we started escalating. Um, and we wrote to the ministers. Uh, Minister Peters, I think, was the first one uh, that we contacted, and he had a very pro forma response. UNRWA is looking into it. We are confident that it's all being resolved, uh, et cetera. And then we started escalating um, some more. Uh, the Human Rights Commission uh, came on board and expressed concern about this. Um, in 2019, I think it was, the United Nations uh, Committee on the 
elimination of racial discrimination, third, raised concerns in a report. That's a pretty big deal. The United Nations is criticizing another United Nations organization for teaching kids to glorify terror. Um, and they said that it, it fuels hatred and may incite violence. And so this was bubbling away. And every time we approached MFAT to have a discussion about it or present the evidence that was continually coming out, uh, we were battered away, essentially. Until 2021, so two years ago now, uh, the EU funded a report because there had been international attention now building on this. And their report came out uh, after a lot of backwards and forwards uh, and basically showed what the last 20 years had showed, that there was open glorification of the murder of Jews taught to children in schools. And MFAT's response to that was, oh, we're going to talk to donor nations and uh, we take this very seriously and UNRWA has mechanisms in place, but actually they're using PA-produced textbooks and they don't have a way out of that. So that was their excuse at the time. So um, just to clarify, this is schools in the West Bank? Schools in the West Bank and Gaza that are run by UNRWA. Uh, UNRWA also have schools in uh, Lebanon and Egypt and, and maybe some other places. Uh, as well. And their tech, the textbooks that they use of the host country uh, in those places are slightly better. But it's really the ones that are in the West Bank and Gaza, because those are textbooks that are created by the Palestinian Authority. Um, and they are, they're terrible. <laughs> they are full of hate um, and incitement. But it gets worse, because... But wait, there's in, more. <laughs> that's right. Don't call now. <laughs> in, in 2020, 21, UNRWA was found to have been producing their own school material. This is with the United Nations stamp of the uh, organization and distributed to all of its students uh, that also glorified terror and incited violence and taught children to hate Jews. And just after that, that was exposed, the MFAT chief executive was asked in a select committee, what's going on? Uh, and he said at the time, I haven't seen anything back from UNRWA that says they are being anything other than significantly serious in looking at this issue and how it came about. So it doesn't matter that there's been 20 years of evidence. doesn't matter that now they're actually the ones that are producing it. Still, the excuses came. In 2022, UNRWA was still found to be producing even more material that encouraged jihad and violence and glorified martyrdom and murder of Jews, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then in March this year, Another report came out, 25 more examples of UNRWA schools using the hateful content and another 10 teachers who are inciting violence online. It's outrageous. And so we thought, look, we've tried to engage with MFAT. We've tried to talk to the ministers. We've, Simon O'Connor has been marvellous and supportive and he raised questions in the select committee. We've been batted away too many times. The Human Rights Commission isn't respected, obviously, by MFAT or the ministers, not even the UN reports. They don't They don't seem to care at all. And so what's our next step? We don't have any funding to get high-powered lawyers to do anything crazy, but we thought well, what we can do is a petition. And then at least we have to, we can table the evidence, we can table it to the committee, and they have to consider it. And we'll see what their response is going to be. But this is just an, an ongoing example of where New Zealand has been supporting financially and politically violence against Jews mm. and glorification of terror and incitement to violence by staff on social media. And it just flies in the face of all of the rhetoric. I'm getting a little bit worked up about this because no other incitement to violence or glorification of terror would be supported by this government. If these schools were praising the Christchurch terrorist, 
or or talking about how it's wonderful to murder Maori, or pick any other group other than well, Jews. even if you just did it, the shoe was on the other foot. And Israeli schools were inciting violence against Arabs and Palestinians. They would be all up in arms, I'm sure. There would be no way that our taxpayer money would be going to fund that. Mm. It would be it, it would be cut off. And MFAT have told us repeatedly that they don't fund any other hate or incitement or glorification of violence. There's no other evidence of any of that in any of the uh, the, the aid money that they disperse. I have no reason to doubt that. It's just, you know, concerning that there's an exception, apparently, that's made for anti-Jewish hate. I mean, to me, what you've just described is a $1 million virtue signal. Is it, is it because of the UN? Because, I mean, the UN has certainly politically, even though it claims neutrality, there's certain, a lot of elements within the UN which fall out into critical social justice and critical theory, which I have an interest in. I don't know what your thoughts are on this, but I've always seen Jews, and especially Israeli Jews, are a bit like the meat in the sandwich. And it's like an Ouroboros that sort of goes round and eats its own tail. The Jewish and Israelis are sort of stuck in the middle between the far left on one side that will um, use them as a tool for their own political gain and yet turn around and do things like this, because I see that falling from that side, and vice versa those on the far right who have had a long explained history of anti-Semitism, and yet they'll throw you in. The critical theorists will say, well, we're pro-Palestinian and, and not Jewish, and if you fall on the wrong side of our theological fence, you get labelled with one of the labels that many of us get called. Um, and far-right conspiracy theorists, which I think is the most ironic thing to, I have had a Jewish friend and that's what they've been called. And they're like, I'm Jewish. How can you call me a far-right conspiracy theorist? I mean, do you kind of, do you sit there thinking, we can't win? You know, like we, you must feel like the meat in the sandwich sometimes. Uh, definitely the meat in the sandwich, but we have 3,000 plus years of winning um, or at least surviving. Um, and so I never think we can't win. But there, there certainly are days where I look around and I think the world has gone mad. Uh, and it's not just because of being Jewish and, and these uh, issues. It's highlighted here and it's amplified, I think. And, and uh, your point is very well made. The The simplest way of looking at it is the, the far right see Jews as non-white and the far left see Jews as too white. But that's the age-old story, right? Jews were too communist uh, in some countries and too socialist in other countries and too democratic in other countries. They were too rich in some countries and they were too poor in other countries. And whatever reason the anti-Semite wants to find, they will find a reason to point the finger, blame the Jew and incite the violence. What gets to me in this example of the schools is it's our government that is funding and supporting violence. I can far better deal with it when it's some crazy either far right or far left or just insane person that is spouting rubbish or whatever they're doing. But when it comes to, you know, the highest offices in our land that are actively sending my tax money mm. and your tax money and our taxes uh, to schools where children are taught to glorify violence, it just makes no sense whatsoever to me. I don't understand it. There's real politic and then there's this. Mm. So where are you at with the petition? I mean, it's been tabled. Have you heard anything more? Or? 
We have. So the um, it's been tabled uh, and they've asked for a written submission. So we're in the process of putting that together. It's almost ready to go. It'll be ahead of schedule and submitted. And then the petitions committee deliberate um, and there'll be some kind of answer uh, in some kind of form. Oh, fingers crossed. Yeah, I'll have to. Well, I don't know about you in terms of the current process that we have, particularly with this government. I was talking to uh, Kerry Wusnup, and she is very involved in the rural sector, and she was heavily involved in regards to Haywaka Ekanoa. They've sort of done similar things. They have uh, done presentations to select committee and put all this stuff out there, and I said, well, has there been any impact or any change or do they actually ever listen? She was just like, no. <laughs> um, so it is, it is very frustrating. I almost feel like sometimes they go through the process because they need to be seen that they're doing the process, but it really matters little at all. Uh, I'm under no illusions that our evidence-based submission and petition is going to change MFAT's decade-long policy. But the other thing that has really disappointed me uh, has been that there doesn't seem to be any media interest, mainstream, legacy, whatever you want to call it, media interest um, in the story. And again, I cannot fathom there wouldn't be front page headlines if our government was funding schools that praised the Christchurch terrorist. And yet, if you turn it around and say that these schools are glorifying someone who murdered 38 civilian Jews on a bus, including 13 children. They don't care or don't seem to care uh, or for whatever reason uh, don't want to report on it. I just don't understand that. Again, if these schools were teaching kids to glorify the Christchurch terrorist, I cannot imagine our, our taxpayer money going to it and I cannot imagine that there wouldn't be a journalist in this country that wouldn't be at least asking questions and writing an article on it. So, I did actually write this question down before we do dive over into your other head. Um, has anyone reached out from the Disinformation Project to make sure that they get information or information that is circulated around Israel is actually correct? No. <laughs> that, <laughs> I did have some communication with Kate Hanna and the response was that that wasn't an area of their particular interest. They had started looking at COVID-19 related disinformation because that's what they were funded for. And they had followed that kind of track. So Israel wasn't part of the remit of what they were looking at. I'm not sure that that, that's necessarily going to change at all. No, no. I know that there is uh, currently a uh, RFP out, which is a softball, I think, for them to get some more work, you know, moving forward. And if they do actually continue, because I can see this being something that continues, you know, that, that there will be certain levels of information where they will categorise it, that this is good, this is bad. If you try to be positive about uh, something that doesn't fit in their neat little boxes, you'll be inst instantly labelled disinformation. Actually, a new term that I saw in the report that they did after the Posey Parker visit was malinformation, which was true information, the truth, but could be used for, you know, malintent. Mm. The truth can hurt sometimes. Yeah, you know? I know. I know. It is. Yeah, I know. I just I just wondered that. I just wondered whether or not that they'd had uh, have reached out. No, so, no we, we haven't, um, unfortunately. 
So the it free would be fertile ground, though, as far as I'm concerned. Very much so. So there you go. And to be to be less flippant, um, not only fertile ground insofar as copious amounts of mis and disinformation, but also with real world effects. So we've seen a union leader, Joe Carolan, lead a chant on the streets of Auckland to globalise the Intifada. And for listeners who aren't aware of what the Intifada was, it was essentially violence against Jews. Periods of time when there were suicide bombings at nightclubs and outside pizza restaurants, horrific violence, um, buses being blown up. And so to have someone in New Zealand who wants to globalise that and bring it here sends shivers down my spine Mm. um, and can only inflame and incite the sorts of unhinged individuals that might act on that. Mm. The Disinformation Project is is more than welcome, as far as I'm concerned, to look into uh, the mis- and disinformation around the Israel-Palestine conflict. Yeah, and as you said too, this has been going on for 3,000 years, and those that don't read history are often fated to repeat it. So I think many of them, there's a lot of the elements of this ideology I find very fashionable. The fist will go up and they'll do that because they believe that that's fashionable. It's like, do you actually realise what you're supporting? They're not really that interested, I don't think, to be honest. The Free Speech Union. Yes, change hats, change hats, David. You had some great success earlier in the year around uh, the hate speech legislation. That was, it was the first time, honestly, I can remember in ages that actually something worked because there's been so much legislation that has been attempted to be bulldozed through by this government in its current term. And actually the people spoke and you guys helped magnify and clarify that message and really i think had tremendous success in watering down that legislation to a point where it wasn't as draconian as they were hoping it was going to be for listeners that aren't aware of that run us through what happened earlier in the year (laughs) thanks Bri. i think i think the long and the short of it is that free speech union has uh, established itself unfortunately uh, as a voice for many 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 kiwis who do not want a censorious regime to suppress speech so i i joined when it was the coalition back about five and a bit years ago now it all sprung out of the want of phil goff as auckland mayor to stop two canadians from talking in the town hall also he tweeted a long story short when i joined i thought this is a a really serious thing because i can see myself as someone in the jewish community wanting to hold an event and being shut down because people don't like what i have to say it's not that I agreed with the Canadians. I certainly don't. But what's good for the goose should be good for the gander. Um, and we shouldn't have double standards in our law or in our politics. And so I saw it for that reason and I put my hand up. And what we learned very quickly is there was huge support across New Zealand for the cause. And that took me by surprise. I wasn't expecting that. Um, I wasn't expecting that because generally I think, you know, we're a pretty live and let live kind of people. And uh, each to their own and head down and look after your family and get through the day and and enjoy life a little bit and not really interested in the political stuff. But this was an issue that I think hit home for a lot of people because just as I saw it, so did thousands of Kiwis and and thousands of them reached into their back pocket and into the couch and, and chipped in um, and helped us take the court case. And what we saw earlier this year, to bring it back to your question, mm. uh, is we ran the most successful campaign petition in the history of New Zealand's petitions. There were 
20,000 odd signatures of our citizens who said, no, we don't want hate speech uh, legislation in this country. I think that sent a message that was louder than any individual could have ever achieved or any smaller group could have done to say there is a real issue here uh, and you need to reconsider this, dear ministers, as much as you might want to shut down our speech and you control what we say and see and hear, that's not what we want. And thankfully, on that occasion, democracy, I think, kind of won out. Now, the can is being kicked down the road. The Law Commission is still uh, going to submit on it, and we don't know where it's going to go from here. And there are still clearly groups and individuals and people in positions of power who do want to control what you can say and hear. Unfortunately, that just means the Free Speech Union needs to stay in business. And we wouldn't have been successful, and we won't be able to continue to stay in business if not for our supporters and our members. And I think the, the the real kudos, I suppose, and the real reason that there has been success is only because we have a large and supportive membership base. We've seen it with Reality Check Radio. So people are wanting to hear another side of a story because you mentioned, you alluded it to it before. I mean, all the work that you've done in regards to the petition that you had tabled, not one single media organisation was interested in picking it up. To have an effective functioning democracy, you've got to have an effective and functioning media. Right. When the media aren't adhering to elements of free speech, people, I think they get twitchy and they realise, I mean, what I think the latest trust numbers I saw in the media, um, it's like only 40% or something actually trust the media now. It's, yeah. it's sad. It's really sad. And what's even, what's even more depressing is the response of the media is, not some self-reflection and, uh, you know, let's sit down and figure out why this is. Maybe it's us. Maybe we should be, you know, not shutting down so many comments and presenting both sides of stories, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the response was basically to say, oh, you're <laughs> deplorables. Mm. People don't know. They don't understand. Well, it's not true. I have a lot of faith in my fellow citizens. I think most people are generally want to do good, uh, want to be informed, I generally can see the BS for what it is. Um, and and that's that, I think, is really the secret of the Free Speech Union success, is we call a spade a spade, and we're not afraid to stand up for the rights of everyone to have their voice, because it, it, what's good for the goose should be good for the gander. Oh, absolutely. I wanted to, two things I read today that really tickled my fancy. And one was around the press gallery at Parliament. They have changed the rules for accreditation within the press gallery. And you now need to be a member of uh, the New Zealand Media Council, I think, in order to get accreditation. And they've changed that rule. They've changed that rule specifically to prevent Sean Plunkett having his accreditation renewed because obviously asking prime ministers uh, what women are is a little bit too scary. So they've gone and done that. Uh, so I thought that was like, wow. But then, you know, that's how they roll. The second thing I saw was with Wayne Brown. So he did a big press conference. It was invitation only to the media and stuff wasn't invited. Uh, and, they, and they weren't happy about it. And he was quite open and said, well, you're not invited because you won't report accurately. So I'm not going to have you there. I mean, he's a polarizing figure, but he is certainly effective and he's not afraid. I think it's about being fearless now, isn't it? And the Free Speech Union has been pretty fearless on a number of these topics. So well done for that. What are some oh, of the things on the horizon that you see? 
Uh, well, <laughs> unfortunately, and I really mean that, we have a lot of work to do. We're very grateful uh, that we found Jonathan Ayling and our CEO, who's doing a sterling job uh, of keeping the ship moving. But uh, yesterday we released a report from um, DIA, and there are some very concerning uh, suggestions in there of setting up um, a essentially a sensor for social media or large platforms. We've got a battle on our hands uh, there. Uh, we are. Um, you, you mentioned before the uh, government uh, RFP for disinformation work. We're putting together. We've, we're contributing to a consortium to try and get some of that work. We can have some input and we can try and influence uh, public policy and, and present uh, useful, uh, important balancing of free speech with harms from disinformation, which we have to acknowledge there can be. So there's a whole work stream there. Uh, and there's one or two other little things that uh, hopefully we can talk about in the, the coming not future. too distant future. Um, yeah. yeah, we have some uh, one in particular uh, very exciting project that um, we're hopefully going to launch this year. Um, so keep your eyes, ears to the ground, eyes open. Oh, fantastic. Now, if anyone needs to find any information, firstly, the Israel Institute, where, where do people, if they want more information about some of the issues we've discussed this this morning, where do they go to for that? Uh, Israelinstitute.nz. Uh, that's where all of our stuff is is online. I'm very happy to take questions and criticisms and feedback. Uh, Israelinstitute.nz is that one. And if I change my hats uh, very quickly, uh, Free Speech Union is fsu.nz. Those are the two websites. Most of the stuff is up there. Facebook and Twitter, I think, are the social media outlets for each of them as well. We haven't quite yet got a TikTok or a Instagram or a Snapchat or any of the others. Somehow I don't think TikTok's quite your market, Pete. <laughs> Just saying. No, no, no. No, I don't think we're going to go that. Mind you, Facebook I don't know, I don't know David. I mean, you could, you could pop... Pop it. He's got his. We're doing this on Zoom. He's got a Zoom background. You can pop a wee hula skirt on and do a wee dance. There you go. That will, that will get them excited on TikTok. I'm no, sure. no, 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 no. That, that's for at home when no one else is around. Ah, oh, well, there you go. Hey, look, David. I really want to thank you so much for giving us your time this morning. This is Dr. David Cooman, the co-director of the Israel Institute of New Zealand. Uh, don't disappear here on Counterculture. Still more great stuff to come on Reality Check Radio. This is Counterculture with Marie Busky, Wednesdays at 10 a.m. on Reality Check Radio. This is Counterculture on Reality Check Radio. I am Marie, your host, and joining me again is Helen Houghton, co-leader of the New Conservative Party. Last time uh, we talked about what was going on in terms of Pink Shirt Day and gender education in schools, and I booked Helen because Pride Week is coming up, Helen, 12th ah. to the 16th of June. Good morning. How are you? Good morning, Maria. It's fantastic to be back on. And I thank your listeners, especially those who have contacted me, that many of them reached out to me and I've been in, uh, quite busy in meetings at the moment, but that's fantastic. Keep calling. I welcome your communication. I have to say, Helen, I pulled up this morning the resource kit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the first thing I noticed is looks like it's been exclusively run by Inside Out this year. Is that, has that been the case every year? Yeah, I think it, it is all. It, it all comes from Rainbow Inside Out, and that includes their um, professional development of teachers. You know, we've got Pride Week is, well, actually, it's all about a gender game. Queer theory now plays a key role in teacher training, and that is from Inside Out. So they're, they're a part of not only the Pride, but also the education of 
teachers, you know, re-education of teachers, encouraging children to find their own gender identity. I mean, how does a student's learning needs relate to their sexual orientation? And yet this is a big focus now throughout our school system, throughout the ministry. So I had a look this morning, Helen, at the resources on the Pride Week website, which is pretty much run by Inside Out. And what amazed me was they had resources for all school levels, so primary, intermediate and high school. Two things struck me. The first thing that struck me was this is a blatant money-making scheme. There are multiple suggestions in here on how to raise funds for Inside Out, as if Um, they're not heavily funded enough. I was under the impression that they are rather well-funded. They are really well-funded from from the government. I mean, I I don't know what they're doing with their money, to be honest. However, it'd be interesting to do an IOA and what they're doing with their funding. I mean, you have to appreciate that like I said, they're training teachers. So I suppose, you know, bringing facilitators into the school because that's one of the uh, one of the objectives is to get facilitators actually teaching all of this inclusive education in schools by taking it out of the hands of professional teachers. And to do that, obviously, they're having to put together uh, learning content. However, that learning content is what we should all be alarmed about. So look, from the outset, can I tell you why I think this new umbrella term or guise, which is what they are using, a guise is the more correct term for that inclusive diversity campaign that they're pushing, um, why it's all wrong. So essentially what it does is regulates a duty forced on every citizen to bear the brunt of someone's disorder. Now I say that because in actuality the guidelines are prescriptive, i.e. the Ministry of Education has mandated every parent, caregiver and member of society to assume responsibility for a few people who have difficulty with their identity. Now, I emphasise their identity. And all of this is happening even without them having to revert to legislation, because you and I both know that it wouldn't pass any legislative action. So basically, this inside-out organisation have got the mandate from government to push all of this throughout the whole school, like you said, from the juniors right through to secondary school. I mean, when in society have we ever expected to cater to the emotional, mental well-being of other individuals in such a personal manner that infringes on everyday lives of us all? Yeah, it is, it's pretty pervasive. And I think it is something that, again, has fallen under the radar of so many parents. Uh, I interviewed Mark Kurno last week from Resist Gender Education. You mentioned her last time we spoke and uh, her organisation. And I said to her, there's that boundary that's been crossed between conversations that I believe should happen in the home between parents and children to what has been taught. The state has almost taken that over and they are taking that away from parents. And I think that that's quite dangerous and secretively so too. A lot of parents are just simply not aware. Absolutely. And that's why I said it's a form of they have mandated every person. It's a changing um, changing a social norm. But who gets to decide that they get to change any norms in society? I mean, we could argue that we should also be affirming people who have alcohol and substance addiction, weight challenges that lead to diabetes and so forth. We're not responsible for another's health. Yet here we have a whole education sector, the ministry, 
providing or wanting to push this complex, you know, instruction around sexuality matters to minors, don't forget, but with the intention to bring forth a new norm. Mm. Parents and general taxpayers do not accept the general duty to be responsible for another parent's child. But this is the whole school's, this is expected. Now, our education system must remove all this woke virtual signaling that's just to appease what is literally at one end of the scale, a health end of of a disorder, and at the lower trajectory, it's a fad for those who are being victims of this Mm. indoctrination. I had some um, feedback, actually, from a a trans-sex person who went through the old system, you know, they're frustrated by this. And they actually had a medical disorder that they went through the entire process and they lived their lives and they're seeing all of this and are not happy. And, and I think you've spoken as well about people that you know in that space and, and they aren't happy because it's become ideological, something that has been pushed into schools when really this is a complex issue that needs to be dealt with as an adult by adult. This is what is written for primary and intermediate age schools on their resources and their website. Firstly, thank you for your support in bringing rainbow identities into your school and classroom. It will make a huge difference to rainbow tamariki or those with rainbow parents and whānau to see themselves reflected in the world and know that they are okay and can thrive, shine and grow freely. Oh my gosh. Some (laughs) Some young kids already know No, I'm glad you're sitting down, Helen. Some young kids already know that they are transgender or non-binary or just somehow different. Oh, my golly. I mean, aren't we all different, Marie? How does anyone know they're rainbow or or gender confused? I mean, teenagers go through identity crisis. Adults go through identity crisis. And, And, you know, that whole making sure that everybody feels belong. That's what we do, no matter what the sexual issues are. We don't, we're not at school to talk about sexual issues. Now, just going back to that trans sex person, I have seen many detransitioners, and one of them says that every step that she made when she was going through the social transitioning at school was that she'd received positive vibes so then she'd want to go to the next step to get the net and the next because it's like an addiction well I liken it to an addiction you're waiting for your next high from somebody else's approval and this is what we're doing here because all that affirmation no but you did right it Mm. is an addiction because all that affirmation and they've shown it with gambling addiction they've shown it with even using devices that there are mechanisms that get pulled in with constant affirmation that releases a little burst of dopamine in the brain which is the feel-good chemical that we have in our brains of course kids want a sense of belonging and they will chase whatever it is that will do that now that's been something that's happened ever since both you and I were children but now it has exceptionally dire mental and physical and medical consequences it's quite concerning Mm. yeah like like you said i mean it's been forever children children are always yearning for their parents attention doesn't matter where a person is even at work you know adults we all want that affirmation like you said but look with the inside out program and what you read out before the statement it's very seductive some of their tools because for example, this detransitioner, she was told that if you're feeling uncomfortable in your body, it's because you are born in the wrong body. And if you change that, your body, 
you won't feel uncomfortable anymore. Now, this is the kind of language that they're using when they are, you know, that, that statement. It's like, um, you know, when we affirm these children, these rainbow people, it's like they're locking them into that. And it's really seductive and manipulative what they're doing. It's actually criminal. I urge people to actually, um, those who haven't already, contact their school boards I'm just going to bring up the rest of what's on this website because I think it yeah. will concern people. So sometimes people think that we at Inside Out are trying to label kids and make them grow up too fast. Oh, yes, dear. we do. You've got that right, tick. Mm. You might face some objection. Exit. <laughs> However, what we want is for kids to be able to play, try out wearing a skirt or sparkles oh or a silly centre bed if that calls to them, try out he or she if they want, and in time grow healthier to whichever adult they are. Oh my gosh. One of the things Marg talked about was the importance of play. And she said play is something that happens out on the playground. But when you come back into the classroom, she said that you can be whatever you want. She said you can be Sam, Samantha, Samuel. She said it doesn't matter what you want to be out in the playground. But the minute you come back into the classroom, you are, if you are Samuel, you're, you're he. If you're Samantha, you're she. You know, you are who you are. The classroom is that sanctity. She said play is one thing, the classroom is another. Now those lines with affirmative affirmation oh. have been blurred and it does beg the question, when does play cross the line into indoctrination? This to me is crossing the line. Oh, it's indoctrination and conversion. This is coercion and conversion at its highest degree. Um, like you said, preschool, they, they all have that play and dress up. I mean, we've all been part of that. You know, the boys, or, okay, I'm probably stereotyping here, but, you know, boys in their uh, superhero capes and the girls with their princess dresses, we don't lead them to that. That's what they want. Mm. But like you said, they're encouraging children in these spaces and leading it to find gender identity, which is so absurd. I mean, we've talked about this, what schools are for and what parents actually want. Since when did the government get that mandate to enforce this kind of, you know, expectations on people. Now, I saw it last year, and, and there's probably a lot of schools, but there has been letters to boards of trustees about Pride Week. I don't know if you know about that, Marie. You might have already seen about what happened last year. You know, there's this push about flying the flag. There's a lot of activities that they do, but the, all the schools are supposed to, or they're encouraged to fly the rainbow flag for the week. And so this particular school flew it for one day, but then that was enough, right? I mean, you've, you've acknowledged it, you've flown the flag, and yet, you know, a lot of students are saying, oh, we feel excluded because you've taken the flag down. Well, they flew it for a day. I would question what we're actually teaching children and young people about resilience, expecting other people to actually be uh, lifting them up and boosting who their sexual identity is in the first place. I mean, what are we setting children up as where they need others to be running around and actually affirming them all the time? That in itself is a major issue. The reason for the decision was initially because of the feedback that they'd had from some parents who children felt last year that they'd had heightened exposure. So it was actually from some of the rainbow community parents themselves who were concerned that they were outing their children and making such a big deal when their children didn't want all this fuss either. And I've heard that, and I think you might have mentioned it before, or others have around um, even adults who are in the LGBT, where it's like, what are you doing making a big scene about who we are? It's outing people. 
they just want to get on like everybody else. And mm. by applying the celebration around it, it does two things. One, if, particularly in these younger children, I really do have an issue with this in any schools, but especially primary and intermediate schools. The children will naturally gravitate to whatever is celebrated and will give them a sense of belonging and feel good about it because they're completely malleable. So kapahaka, okay, so the primary school that my kids went to, there weren't a lot of Māori kids at the primary school, but they did have a kapahaka and it was cute. All the kids that wanted to get involved in kapahaka got involved and they sang and they had a wonderful time and it was about it was the whole premise, the teacher that ran it did a great job. The whole premise was about the kids having a good time. It didn't matter if you're Māori or non-Māori, everybody got involved and they enjoyed singing all the songs that I know I learnt when I was a kid and they really, and it was just a celebration of song and they wove in some tradition in there and, and that's what they enjoyed. And it was popular because the kids wanted to belong and be part of it. This to me is a little bit more sinister because this is the gateway. Going into Kapahaka is not going to lead you into a, a social or surgical transition. Well, that's it. And you've hit the nail on the head because I have read in some of the uh, instructions of uh, Inside Out for Pride Week on how to coach younger children or what parents can say to younger children about what pride is even. And they've said things like it's a celebration. Well, that, that's false. You know, it's like you're just using, like what you said, kabahaka, yeah, everyone can enjoy it and that. But to say that Pride Week is a celebration, no. I mean, it's a lot different than that. It's about sexuality and it leads, like you said, to potential surgery and complete uh, mutilation of body parts and sterilising children. You're right. The thing is that the children that really feel in their gut that they don't want to be part of this because they know the bigger picture they are then the ones being singled out and that's where the exclusion actually is happening it's not happening from lgbt students it's actually happening now from children that have got opposing views and don't want to take part of it they're being singled out which is no different to it being like bullied and victimizing those children who don't want to take part coercion Let's look at coercion. I mentioned it before. Coercion is rife around this whole pride stuff and the treatment of those children with exclusion if they don't conform. So now coercion is a violation of a person's rights. It's an attempt to control behaviour. How are we allowing this in school? And also, too, if you're going to celebrate uh, one group with pride, then therefore surely you must be celebrating all other aspects of identity that people may have. So where is the hetero week? The commercial aspect of this, and I just wanted to go down, so activities for primary schools, Helen. Let's scroll further down the page. Activities for primary schools, they have an activity called the Common Ground Activity, an interactive classroom game for tamariki that explores all the things that they have in common, rather than focusing on their differences. Really? But you've got an entire week that does nothing but highlight and celebrate those so-called differences. Yes, I mean, how confusing is that for a kid? The goal of this game is to open up a corridor and facilitate tamariki thinking about how we behave and how we can all be better in, at including others. Now, that common ground activity, that in itself, there's nothing wrong with that activity, wow. right? But that activity should be part of everyday activity, that teaching children to interact positively with their peers 
surely should be foundational as part of the EQ of what you teach kids at school, not just in the confines of Pride Week. Honestly, I do just about. Oh, you know, it's um, this is what teachers do. We've been doing it for decades. It's part of this classroom culture. We set it up at the beginning of each year to make sure that, you know, we've got this inclusion and everything else, but it hasn't been, you know, made such a big thing about inclusive education because we didn't need to. This is what, like you said, it's part of the day-to-day routines of uh, teaching about respect. You know, we teach all those things as values, respect and responsibility. And yet, you're right, this is, um, like I said, it's a guise. It's a guise to push something so much more sinister. Um, Marg also mentioned too, she says part of the reason this is so successful is because they have pride lesson plans. And now that teachers are so stretched with all the other administrative work that they have to do within the classroom, that by having all of these lesson plans supplied, it is just easy for easier for them to go and download plug and play and then it's one less job on their uh, list of jobs uh, to do. Yeah. But we're going to touch on a lot of other things that are happening in the school system, why it's failing and one of those, like there's about five things that I see as being a problem in the school, why children are failing or why we're failing our students. One of them is a crowded curriculum, and I was going to talk a wee bit about that now, accommodating new demands from society or from these lobby groups inside out. I mean, when it's already an overcrowded curriculum. So you're right, and, and all these campaigns compete for curriculum space. How can teachers ensure that breadth and depth of learning are given attention. So you're right. It's like, okay, I'll grab that, get it over and done with. The good thing is now a lot of teaching staff are seeing it for what it is and they also are having a lot of more complaints from members of the community. Some are pushing back and saying, no, we're not doing this. It's a little bit like this principal who came out and said, okay, we'll fly it for one day and then that's that's it, it's done. Obviously, the Rainbow Lobby Group, the Inside Out Group, have huge power or have been given that power from our government and so they will continue. Yeah, it is encouraging that we're having these conversations now and this is what we do need to question. We need to have these um, debates and I think I mentioned to you, I've got a citizens initiative referendum out there to actually call to remove some of this stuff from the schools and parents and community members who are out there listening it's really important that you get behind these petitions and citizens in a share referendum sign them share them get out there and actually um, help these you know signatures to happen because unless you do like we've we've given you the vehicle Okay, so we've got those things passed now, but unless you're out there helping to get the signatures, we're not going to reach the target that we need to actually then insist, because we can insist, we've got the voices, we have the control to take it back. But unless you step out, sign your name and help get those, we're not going to actually achieve it. Basically, I'm putting it back in the hands of parents and community members who are listening. It's up to us. It's up to you now. I've put the petitions out there. I've got stuff happening. So we are doing things. There's a lot of other groups now doing things. Like you said, you had Mark from Resist Gender Education. They're a bunch of ex-teachers. Why do you think ex-teachers are talking about this and are concerned? Because they didn't have the voice in the system. They couldn't fight the system because we have the likes of the Teachers' Council who are threatening jobs. They're threatening. Like, I probably won't be able to get my registration back because of the challenging that I'm doing. You know, it's been, there's subtle threats and letters that they have sent. So 
teachers can only do so much and there's there are really good like this is not about you know attacking teachers because there are such so many great teachers out there but the the direction is coming from the ministry which of course is government ministers and that's where we need to be working on government ministers and who we're voting for. The, um, so Marg also brought up and highlighted, and you did the first time we chatted, was in terms of that parents can uh, intervene at any time. They can contact their schools at any time. And <clears throat> this really does need to come from the parents because the teachers that are still in the system are under a, a, th- a threat, a veil of threat with your registration, as you've just outlined, there is the opportunity now, I think, for parents to get a little bit more involved about some of the, I think, seismic changes in curriculum that have happened in a very short space of time. And it's really easy. We're so busy. I mean, we've all, I mean, look, all of us that have got school aged children, we've all been guilty of it, that between nine and three that we can pop the kids somewhere that we, we know that they're safe, in inverted commas, and we can work or get on with our lives. But actually, are they completely safe? And also, are they receiving the information that we believe that they're receiving? And I think that's when you said about a crowded curriculum. There are so many things that you can initiate with the school as a parent. If you're not comfortable talking to the school about pride stuff, if you find that really uncomfortable, um, you're not confident to do that, you can certainly have a word with the school about how crowded the curriculum is, how concerned you are about all these other aspects of learning that your child might be undertaking that isn't core curriculum in terms of academic attainment, which we know is appalling now and and the thing is when it comes to the schools having to report or even us trying to get information from the government about how this is impacting parents if there's no data or no backlog of parents who have been in um, official you need to make official complaints so that it is recorded but if that's not happening then of course they're just going to say oh well nobody's complaining so we haven't had any issues you know so it's really important and I know a lot of people over the last four years since we've been highlighting these issues have gone to their schools and have said you know oh we want to see what the sexuality curriculum looks like what are you going to teach that's not enough anymore you know you actually have to put the complaint in if parents then are dissatisfied with the outcome of the complaint that they um, receive. You know, the next step is to complain to the Ministry of Education. Don't worry if they don't listen to it. I mean, you know, the, but the more that you've got that record of it, then you go further, the Office of the Ombudsman and <clears throat> the Children's Commissioner for further investigation, because that's how far we have to go, I'm afraid. We really do have to go further. Further to that, if schools are forcing students to take part in rainbow activities. I mean, I talked to you, I think it was last time about that student who recorded Mm. celebration. Yeah, if the students are being forced to take part and complaints are not resolved or taken seriously, then there can also be legal action, thinking about religious parents for discrimination. Okay, because like you said before, what about these other groups? And they are being discriminated against different cultures who don't actually you know, have different views about all this pride stuff. But for non-religious parents who also do not support the Pride Week, some of them, like you said, are afraid to voice their opposing views because then they and their children are being singled out. So really important to um, get, look, I've been contacted since the last show, Marie, and I'm now speaking with a lot of parent 
groups. And, and, you know, sometimes there's over 40 to 50 people in these groups. So there are parents out there, if you're listening and you're thinking, you know, you're worried about speaking up, there's a lot of parents who feel like you. And we are out there now, we are talking, I'm meeting with a big community uh, Sunday night, I'm meeting, gosh, I've got lots of meetings happening. So talk to people, you know, and whispers if you have to, to start with until you find the right parents. Um, and then get together. You can contact me. I mean, I'm sure Marie will put my email on here at some point. Well, yeah. we can actually do it now. So Helen.Houghton. Helen.Houghton, there you go. Helen.Houghton at newconservative.org.nz. If you are out there and you want me to come and speak to a group of parents, if you also have a child who's being impacted by anything to do with any of these lessons, contact me because I have something else planned as well, but I need parents who are in the system now who are dealing with it for this next step. So please contact me. I welcome you. Look, I have students as well as parents contacting me. I had a meeting with a 15-year-old student just um, recently and I interviewed him about how it's impacting, how all of this stuff, and not just this, but a lot of other school issues are impacting students right now. And um, that's quite revealing. So you'll hear that shortly. Look, even this morning, Marie, I just want to read this out because somebody, I don't even know them. I get messages all the time from parents and now, like I said, students. But even this morning, I had one. And I'll just read some of it because I haven't responded to this person yet because it was just before the interview. She messaged and said, I have a daughter at a school in year nine. I've had a conversation with her health teacher, re the sex education, and we aren't on the same page. So she's pulling her daughter from these classes, which the teacher informs her that other parents have also done. Uh, she's going to remove her daughter from school for Pride Week and have decided they're going on holiday. Good on her. As I don't know other parents in the school, my friend and I want to make other parents aware on what is being taught. Okay, so she's going to do, she goes on to say she's going to do a letterbox drop, which is fantastic. So there you go. There's mm. people out there suffering from this. One of the things I've been quite hot on is about, as you said, creating action. And if you're a parent out there, so these are guidelines, just so you're aware, that even though there is gender and sexual education in the curriculum, certainly health sexual part has been in the curriculum, the overall pride and gender stuff are very much guidelines so schools can uh, ramp it up or tone it down as much as they like but there are elements that are in there now some schools I've often found from the people I've spoken to in the experience it depends very much if there is a teacher who identifies in the alphabet community they tend to be the ones that lead the charge at a particular school so they'll be the ones that will look after um, the rainbow groups uh, in school and they will often drive the charge on, on pride week and things like this great fine that's what they tend to do. But this is when, if you're really uncomfortable with this as a parent, and that is, mm. is going on in your child's school, you know what, if you are at drop-off and pickups and you're talking to the other mums and dads there, you know, all you need to say is, so what do you think about all of, it, all of this pride stuff? I think you'll be amazed at the conversations that you get. Just keep it open-ended because if they're totally pro it and think it's wonderful, well, you're not going to out yourself, to use the pun, um, if you have, have concerns. But you'll be amazed at how many parents are there, especially dads, 
There are a lot of really concerned dads out there. It's finding a little group of you. So then if you're not confident enough to have those uh, conversations uh, with the school on your own, sometimes it can be easier if it's a little group of parents to call a meeting with the board of trustees and actually start this conversation. And it may be a case that you use Pride Week to do that for future events moving forward but definitely you've got to have those courageous conversations because if you don't complacency is what got us in this situation and I think it's courage in those conversations that will get us out. 100% agree with you Marie. We're going to play this clip at the end of this interview and so I want you to just preface this clip for us uh, Helen before we do so. A parent who contacted me after she heard me speaking with you last time Marie she contacted me because she also knew my name from a school where I had taught, her child went about five, six years ago, and that was at primary school. She wanted to meet with me and talk about what her son was going through and his friends in the school system. So I met up with her and she told me that the students out there are full of anxiety and they've got no one to talk to. She said they talked to her son because he, he's a very mature 15-year-old and he's a really good listener. You know, some children are more the ones that people go to. And he said a lot of people go to him. They go to him with their problems. They go to him when they're concerned. They go to him because they're concerned about things that are happening, not just in the world, but around the school, around th- you know, around this kind of gender stuff even, you know, all that confusion around it. Uh, I was teaching in a class the day directly after they had that sexuality lesson and there was a boy looking and mucking around on his iPad and I asked him uh, what what he was doing and he said he was just looking, finding out what he would look like as a female. So, you know, this is impacting our children. I've had parents contact me who said their children are anxious after those lessons. So this boy um, wanted was quite happy to meet with me and have an interview. I didn't lead him or ask him too many questions, you know, just a few questions, but mainly I wanted it to be his voice so that we were really listening to him about any concerns that they have as students. And he's got, oh my gosh, it's a fantastic interview, a fantastic young man, and he's got a really strong message out there for school leaders, for adults even, you know? And so, I'm, yeah, I'll, I'll leave you to hear what he has to say. Hello everyone, Helen Houghton here from New Conservative. I'm talking today with a young 15-year-old man from one of our local high schools in Christchurch, just about some of the things that are happening in the school system. Hello John Doe, thanks for chatting with me today. Thanks for having me to be able to speak about some of the issues happening just in schools, education, and branching out there a little bit, just our country and society, there's a lot of things that need to be spoken about to fix at the moment. Thank you, John. So can you share with me what motivated you to want to share your views with me and to the general public? Well, some of my motivation comes from my friends, and I see how in our current schooling system and the education that we are being provided, how it affects them. And it's... It provides a lot of anxiety and a lot of insecurity. Like people don't know what to do or a lot of people are confused with how the world is and it causes a lot of instability in our society and that needs to be addressed. 
Thank you, John. So I'm going to start with uh, the school environment. So the school environment is important for student outcomes. How do you feel your school environment supports you academically versus socially? Or hang on, let me put that another way. You may have heard that students are not performing well academically. Now, we're not talking about every student needing to get high levels to enter university. We're talking basic education, to leave school with a good standard of literacy and maths, which, let's face it, we all need to function in whatever work choices that we aim for. I'm going to give you an example. One of my sons wasn't too interested in learning during high school, actually probably both of them. But they both stuck it out long enough to know how to read, write and work with numbers. Now, one of those, one of my sons has been roofing for almost 10 years. At a young age, he started his own business for a while. He's since worked on top architectural homes that have won House of the Year awards. You can probably imagine that his number knowledge would have to be pretty spot on for that, oh, yeah. right? Maths not only is important for people working with numbers, Numbers are in most things that we do. Now, thinking about the academic side of education first, do you think that you have enough teacher time instructing you on those basics like maths, literacy, being reading or writing? Well, in a lot of our curriculum at the moment, we do have quite a few periods where it's sitting down listening to a teacher, which is what we need because we're listening to a person. We're listening to somebody who's explaining it to us. If we don't understand it, they're able to speak to us. Sometimes with the classroom sizes that we have at the moment, it gets a bit iffy with how many students they have to get around to, so some kids get left behind. But a lot of it is a lot of work online that we just get told to do, and a teacher sits in the corner of the class fiddling around their laptop. As a generation, or just as humans, we don't learn that way. We learn from each other. We learn from explanations, experience, and being told, this is how you do this. Do you understand it? Do you need help with it? But you don't get that if you're just typing and typing and typing. And with our literacy and writing, our writing gets left behind back in intermediate. If you're not extremely up to par with it then you're not getting up to par unless you want to go get lessons outside of the curriculum but literacy uh i'd say there's quite a bit of that that wouldn't be necessary like um poems so we have to do that sometimes or <laughs> long examples exemplars on stuff and it's not necessary for some of the things that we do it on and i just think we need to be more focused on what matters rather than what we think we need to do Wow, you've given me a lot to think about there. Um, I'll just touch on poems. I'm I'm a shocker for teaching poems because I love poetry. Yeah. And I remember a class where I taught uh, poetry and I told the the um, boys in the class that by the end of that, uh, those I don't know, it was about six weeks of poetry, um, that they would actually enjoy it. But that's because yeah. I gave them some really interesting content. But uh, it's a bit of a shame that you weren't with me then, John. So from the poems, it's um, something that I've loved teaching, John, but I've t I'll take your 
criticism there and think about that next time if I'm ever in a classroom. I'm sure from your curriculum I would have probably enjoyed it a whole lot more, but at the moment it's just a lot of sidetracking. Absolutely, I appreciate that because I did. my intention was to make sure that the boys in the classroom actually found some really good content uh, to enjoy it. So I appreciate, <laughs> I appreciate your um, enthusiasm in my, in my teaching. Welcome. You mentioned one thing that... I was quite shocked about, but I do know that this happens. And you talked about being set work on the laptops and the teachers just sitting there on their laptop. And I've actually, shockingly enough, seen this kind of stuff happen. And, um, you know, that's one of my concerns as well, why I asked you about whether you get enough instructional time. And I have heard other students even commenting that they'd rather the teacher up the front talking to them and helping them uh, go through those lessons because there's such a thing now, I don't know if you're aware, John, but as educators, we've been told for a number of years to have a student-led teaching, okay? Yeah, that's not and how we learn. No, I mean, you do need guidance, yeah. but uh, more teacher-led, would you, would you yeah, agree? We need much more teacher-directional rather than student-directional. What happens when it's student-directional? In a student directional educational system, if a large majority of students is unable to do a thing, you'll see things go up in curriculum or down in curriculum. And but with a teacherly like way of learning, it would be more students learning, less being left behind, and because we're following a path, we're not being told, oh, just dilly dally around. We're following mm. a it's a dilly-dally around thing that I was wondering whether you were going to touch on that. So those yeah. students who are being supposedly doing their own student-led learning, are they on task? A lot of the time, no. I'm going to have to admit it. Uh, I see some people that are just blatantly, they get, they see the pattern, they see, oh, this isn't much in the teacher's favour here. They don't have much control, so I'm going to veer off the path a little bit and do my mm -hmm. own thing. Mm -hmm. So on saying that, how much of a learning day do you think you're actually learning? Well, how much? Or how many hours do we have in a learning day? It's five or six, right? I'd say out of the five periods I have a day, the information I'm taking in is about three of them. Because there are wow. certain periods where mm. I just disconnect because it's so technology-focused rather than learning. Interesting. I was talking to somebody else recently about the technology. I was talking to a high school teacher and we were both saying that we think there's far too much technology use in, in classrooms as well as, you know, your own devices. What I'd like to actually direct us to now is some of the so more social issues around the school because there seems to be a large push with uh, values and social issues around uh, something called inclusive education. Do you know much about inclusive education? I have some questions here for you, but would you like to share with me a little bit about what your thoughts are on inclusive? Could you give me a better definition of that if you don't mind me asking? What do you think about the 100 or so different genders? Uh, the, <laughs> I think there's no need to have that many of them. I agree that some people feel out of place or there's the occasional one where you get a little bit of both and sometimes the doctors decide to take one without anybody having second thoughts about it. Well, yeah, people. we call that intersex. Yeah, intersex I can agree with because that's somebody else has made a change on your life and you need help with that. But there are so many that can just be explained as just plain wrong and unnecessary. Yeah, 100 seems to be a bit extreme. I know of yeah. two. I know of 
uh, males and females, and in between that, like you said, there's the intersex, which is a condition, but it's, yeah. you know, these other, all these other names. Can you name any of them? Uh, transgenders. That's just a whole lot of gender dysphoria out in the world that needs to be addressed instead of being... So more of a psychological thing, because it is a yeah. uh, psychological issue. So is that something then that should be addressed in classrooms, do you think? Maybe not in classrooms as such, but if if we see enough of it in our education system, then we need to start to help people. I know people don't like that term because that sounds like, oh, get rid of it, heavy. I'm not saying get rid of it, but there are some people that are just very misled that need direction. Yeah, a lot of support is really good, yeah. and that's what we want to do to support them. But what's happening now, from what I'm seeing as an educator, John, is that we're told to affirm them, and what that means is by agreeing with their confusion, mm. uh, which I don't think is very helpful. Do you think it's helpful to agree with somebody who's who's walking around um, with a gender that's actually not a real gender? As far as uh, I'm just thinking of when I said, can you name one? I'm thinking I've seen pansexual. Do you know what that even is? I do believe there are probably people that are going to be pissed off if I get this wrong, so I apologise to those people. But uh, to my knowledge, it's you like people for who they are, not whatever gender out of the 10 years, probably a million it is going to be. You like them for who they are rather than what they are. Mm -hmm. So have you ever been given a sheet in any of your health classes around the oh, different yeah. names? Oh, yeah. We Do got given a sheet last year and the year before that in some of our health classes that delved into it. And there were some students that were like, oh, okay, I'll learn about this, and so on, and got really heavy into it. I was on the fence about it at the time before I started to really develop my own opinion, and there were some kids that were ahead of me with their own opinion that just blatantly refused to learn about it. Mm, interesting. What about pronouns? Have you ever heard any teacher talking about pronouns or, for example, asking you what pronoun you would like to use? Uh, we were we got taught about pronouns in those same health classes, but there was this one instance where I was walking through the hallway and I bumped shoulders with another student and they wanted to apologise because I was just turning a corner and they just turned a corner, so I said sorry. And then they asked me for my pronouns because they didn't want to offend me in an apology. And I said... Mate, we both, I'm going to assume, because we're both males, we both have a dick. So we're both he's, right? And he didn't like that one too much, so he walked off. But it was just, we don't need that in our education system to be talked about or pushed onto us. Exactly. Now, I'm just going to talk about something. I so said, we're talking about pronouns. So you've got he, she, he and she are the usual yeah. normal ones. But, you know, for some really strange reason they're using they in there as well and uh z and z and i've heard of Zizu. all different yeah yep. some um, doesn't make a lot of sense to me but nope. uh so now i've also heard correct me if i'm wrong but and this might not be only at this particular school but there's a cat in the girls school that's next to your school a human who's identifying as a cat just for the listeners out there that's a schoolgirl who identifies as a cat have you yeah. ever met her, John? Uh, I've observed, I've seen her from a distance. I can't say I've ever met because that would mean I've affiliated with them. I've never gone and approached them, never spoken to them. But there were times where they would wear this little band in their hair and they'd have little cat ears poking out. And there were times they'd just let out random noises. And it was just a weird environment to see or even be around. But that's, I've heard cases of that happening all over Christchurch, all over New Zealand, all over the world. It's just people... They're losing their grip on reality. 
It's interesting because recently I heard that there's a school in Christchurch where the teacher or somebody actually puts down a, a bowl of cat milk or milk for a student that's identifying as cat, and I thought surely not. But you're telling me that there's actually a student that you know of in the school who was identifying as a cat. So there might be more than one. Sadly, sadly, yeah. Gosh. comment on that. Oh, and how do you feel about teachers or any adults, in fact, allowing a child to walk around functioning as a cat? Well, I think a lot more adults and a lot more teachers need to be held to account because as an adult, I might, I'm 15. I'm currently still going through school. So a lot of people call me inexperienced. A lot of people say, I don't know what I'm talking about, but I believe myself to be mature for my age. And so as a 15-year-old, I'm telling the adults that think that's okay, you need to start getting a grip on your life again because it's not right. You know it's not. You've had enough life experience to be able to pull people up on that, but you're so laid back and hands-off that you think that's just the free thing to do. It's not. They need support. Okay, I think in another 10 years, I'm looking at promoting you to Prime Minister, John, uh, because our Prime Minister, I don't know if you're aware, actually doesn't really know what a woman is or how to identify one. But anyway, besides that, I will just talk about now Pride. So do you know that Pride Week is coming up on June the 12th through to the 16th in schools? What thought comes into your mind when you think about Pride Week at school? Well, I'll tell you what, I definitely... Uh, our education system doesn't let us not know about it, doesn't let us live it down. We certainly get reminded that it's coming up to be more accepting when it's up. And I might say a lot of things that sounds anti, like the inclusive community or the LGBTQIA+, if I got that in the right order even, because it seems they add more and more every year. But do they really need a whole week? That, that's the question I'm going to ask people. It's because I can understand a day. I can understand two or three, but we give the Anzacs less time than we give this community, apparently. We talked before a little bit about anxiety and you were concerned about a lot of um, your friends, for example, with depression and anxiety. Do you think that any of these lessons around sexuality or um, all this rainbow stuff, do you think that plays a part? In, oh, yeah. Yeah. How, how so? Well... As soon as you start to question the fundamentals of what makes us humans, it's like female, male, like one half of the reproductive system, the other half of the reproductive system, you start to lose our foundations, you start to lose the things that like stabilize our way of thinking. So as soon as you start to destabilize generations and their way of how they see the world, like this, a lot of the stuff's recent. So we're getting brought up through primary and middle school and being told this stuff late middle school, high school. And it's it doesn't serve to help us because we're going through development stages even. So we'll get anxious or depressed anyway. But this being pushed on us, it only serves to strengthen that because people start questioning stuff. Yeah, and like you said, there's a real instability about not knowing anymore what you believed and what you think uh, and what you actually know is true that, you know, there's boys and there's girls. So just thinking about that, what would you like teachers or school leaders of schools to know about the rainbow content in schools? Like I said with the previous comment is you need to start realizing we don't need it to be out there. Like, uh, 
what's the terminology? There's like millennials and gen whatever. Gen Z and gen. Yeah, yeah. but the generation before mine and the no, a couple before that, they fought for what a lot of those people stand for and what they get to do nowadays. But I've spoken to a few of them, some of them I'm related to, and they don't agree with it. They don't agree how out there it is, how agenda-heavy, how much they try to force people to agree with them. Like, in their own community, they shun people. So we need to realize that pushing that in our education system, it doesn't help. If anything, some people get turned away because they agree, disagree with one of two things. And so as teachers and as principals, you need to realize we can dampen that a bit and try to help people rather than make them seek other outlets. Yeah, interesting point to make. Uh, there's one thing to be accepting, which I believe that you know, we, we talked a little bit before about being accepting, but I'm sure that you're accepting even before Rainbow Week comes about. Would that yeah. be correct? Yeah. So, yeah, some really good points made there, and I hope that some of the schools and the school leaders listen to this audio at some point, John. Uh, I certainly would like to have more interviews with you about some of the other education things that are concerning for you. So for now, I'd just like to say thank you so much. I look forward to seeing your future in politics. Thank you a lot. I uh, can't thank you enough for giving me a way to speak for a whole lot of us. Wonderful. We'll give you more opportunities. Thank you, John. Thank you. That is certainly very powerful, Helen. So this will potentially raise questions from parents. So again, give us that, give us your email again. So if parents do have any questions that they want to raise around this, so they can contact us at inbox at realitycheck.radio or text us on 2057 and we can pass stuff on to Helen. But Helen, your email address again? Helen dot Houghton at newconservative.org.nz and please contact because there are students out there like um, John Doe, our student who's using that name, said, you know, they're cons they, they've got anxiety and this is not good that we have our students out there, our children who are feeling like this and they don't have an adult teacher that they can go, that they trust enough with their concerns. So it's really important that we, the adults, are looking out for our children in our communities. And that anxiety is endemic. Talking to Galeva Ludos, she put out some data and it was something like only 42% of students are attending school regularly. And I think anxiety is a leading cause. There's lots of sources for that anxiety, but why are we adding more anxiety to our kids right now? And that's my concern too, because What's happening is instead of it being addressed for these other reasons, like you said, there are a lot of reasons, but it's the only main groups that are in the schools are the ones directing and leading children into this whole gender confusion area. So it's like, oh, you've got anxiety. Well, well you know, let's look into that. Maybe you're confused about your identity. You know, they're really being led down this path and, like this predatory almost. Oh gosh, yeah, it is. The New Zealand curriculum document in the statement at the beginning, it says how it took 10 years of lots of data, lots of collaboration, lots of discussions with community, parents, all sorts of leaders, right? And yet this sexuality guidelines 
they, that's not the same. They did not have that same kind of level of investigation before they pushed it out there. So we are calling, you know, I know we're going to talk about New Conservative and what we're doing and what I'm doing, but I'll be calling for a complete, uh, you know, to, to cease that sexuality guidelines, investigate what the best things are to be teaching our children around relationships, less of the sex stuff, because as we've talked about, a lot of the sex stuff is experimental, you know, lessons. I've seen it. I've got it sitting in front of me. There's explicit language that should not be in our schools. So no. thank you, Marie. Oh, no, that's no, it's been great to catch up with you again, Helen. I really do appreciate it. And as uh, we alluded, I will be getting Helen back because we will get round to talking about politics one of these days, Helen. Yes, and also all the other things that are wrong with, with the school system, like, you know, not just the overcrowded curriculum, but the technology, the student-led learning, um, modern learning environments. So there's a lot, Marie. Exactly. There is a lot for us to talk about. Look, I really do appreciate your time. Do thank um, John Doe for us as well. It's a really courageous thing to do. Uh, so uh, we would love to hear what you think. As I said, text us 2057 or inbox at realitycheck.radio. This has been Helen Houghton, co-leader of the New Conservative Party. Uh, don't go away. More to come here on Reality Check Radio and Counterculture. This is Counterculture with Marie Buskey. Wednesdays at 10 a.m. on Reality Check Radio. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057, that's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. Welcome back to Counterculture with Marie. And of course, this time, as we do each week, it is time to dive into the media stories that catch not only my eye, but my partner in crime's eye, Marty Gibson. Good morning. How are you? Morning, Marie. I'm good, thanks. Good. 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 We had a long weekend, King's birthday weekend. I uh, dived into the papers across the weekend and also had a look at a few other things. I've decided not to touch on it because it kind of spoilt my day on Monday. But... Uh, Supreme Leader getting uh, the Grand Damehood. Yes. What she was doing? only accepted it for her fans. I have a theory yeah. on this. Oh, all right. We've primed the pump. Come on, let's hear it. Every ex-Prime Minister gets themselves a knighthood, right? What are the odds? What are the odds? So I think that there was a case of they didn't want to single her out by not giving her one because then they could turn around and play the misogyny card. But I think it's a golden handshake. I think it's, here you go, Pete. Thank you. Mm. Thank you for your service. Bye. I really do. And I think most people will look at that and go, really? <sighs> and then just move on. You know, let's celebrate the ones that were on the list that actually did a good job. Well, I mean, you have to wonder about the list as well, because when you go through it, you can see it's been heavily uh, ratioed to make sure that, you know, the top one's all women and of yeah. the 182, I nearly did a survey did between you? genders, well, according to name, what I mean, how can one tell these days, between genders, that what their services laid and whether they were cultural, social or the like. And I mean, I didn't even need to do that. You just had to glance down the list and see that there was certainly a bias 
towards uh, those areas. Now, not saying that any of those people in those areas that received an award haven't done a lot of good work. I mean, they obviously have, but the convening committee that designs these things obviously cast an eye in a certain direction. I think you're right. I don't think they would have ever considered not giving Jacinda Ardern one. She's the ultimate insider. She's the, just like Chris Hipkins, she's a screen and a keyboard, the CPU somewhere else. It's on the mainframe. So, of course, the mainframe's going to give her a, a damehood. I was thinking about it last night. I would have been um, impressed if she had have said, I've been honoured enough and I really just want to return to life as a normal person. I feel embarrassed by the adulation I've received and if it's all the same to you. You know, she's just an avowed Republican, so that's exactly what I thought too. I kind of would have actually respected her if she turned around and done that and gone, wow, this is a tremendous honour, but actually, thanks, but no thanks. I mean, Richie McCall did that, did he not? I don't know, did he? I think so. Oh, Richie, eh? What a mm. mensch. Anyway, that's enough on that. Took a little sort of kink out of my step on Monday, but um, I've regained it now, so it's all good. Now, we both dived into a lot of papers this weekend. One story you picked up was the lead story, was it on the Herald on Sunday? Uh, it was Weekend Herald. Weekend Herald. feel less safe, want more police, harsher penalties. And then the gaslighting starts. We well, get told by Granny Herald why actually we're safe and actually more police. We've already got more police and actually harsher penalties. We're going to get a comment from a guy who thinks we should have no prisoners, which was Dr. John Buttle. So it sort of kicks off with him. So it sort of lays it out. Two-thirds of New Zealanders are more concerned about being a victim of crime today than they were five years ago, and harsher prison sentences and more police would make them feel safer, Weekend Herald poll reveals. As part of an editorial series, The New New Zealand, Rebuilding Better. It's not quite the... Build back, back better. better. With its BBB. Those Bs can sometimes look like sixes, just saying. The Herald is looking at the state of crime in our country and the solutions available to address it. So, yeah, sort of most people, 34%, want harsher sentences. 27% want more police. Further down, it says, far fewer respondents said the mo- most important thing to improve their safety was more focus on rehabilitation rather than prison, 6%. More social workers and other support, 4%. Making alcohol harder to access, 4%. And stopping school truancy, 4%. I mean, I'm surprised that none of those are easier instant access to drug and alcohol inpatient care. You know, they should have those folks going into the holding cells the morning after and saying, are you happy with where your life's going? Is it time to clean up? Whenever you battle with those demons, it's often at those rock bottom moments. Yeah. Sorry. And how often have we heard stories where people have had that moment and they are like, right, we want change. And the support is not there. They're like, ah, can you just shelve that for six months because there's a waiting list or there's no funding in this area. I mean, you're dead right. It's having teams of people who are there to help support people at the moment that they need it most. Yeah, go into someone's holding cell the day after they've done some dumb stuff, maybe bash their wife. You turn up with their kids and you say, hey, man, this is a changing day for you. You know, you could this could be the start of something a lot better for you because at the moment, where are you going? You're going to jail, right? We can have a talk to the police, but we've got a nice job in the hills cleaning up forestry slash. You'll be able to eat good food. You'll come out of it fit as anything, drug problems behind you. You will have dealt with some of the stuff that maybe you want to 
numb yourself to and you know you can go on to help other people who are where you are right now how does that sound yes or no and you know what love or hate the tama keys mm. this is where particularly the man up charity yep. has been so valuable to new zealand society because they've filled that gap for so yep. many disaffected young men particularly in that space yeah the tama keys in gisborne norm mcleod Norman Tess McLeod, uh, House of Breakthrough. Yeah, I've seen them uh, do a lot of good. I'm always, you know, it, it always makes me a bit uneasy tithing by high interest credit card, but it makes me uneasy um, tithing to Grant Robertson via tax rates that he's going to mm. just waste. As you often do, you kind of see someone presented as an authority. You have a dig into them and you realise it's not as clear cut or they're not as, as independent <laughs> a voice as you thought. So it's got Dr. John Buttle. This is from the story. Senior lecturer at AUT School of Social Sciences and Public Policy said, while harsher prison sentences and higher police numbers may make people feel safer, they did not lower the crime rate. He said prison tended to make people feel disconnected from society, while more police often meant the crime rate rose as officers had more capacity to arrest people. Oh, they catch more sake. criminals, the crime rate goes up. So I... You know, just with that little bit of an interesting logical jump, I thought, well, what else can I find? So I had a look at, actually, I don't have where I got it from, but it was from a policy directions website, all in on the idea that the prevalence of brown folks in prison is evidence that the system is racist. The number of peoples of colour incarcerated is 62.2%. 50.8% of the prison population is Māori and 114 Pacific people, indicating a strong racial bias in the criminal justice system. Is it that or the aspects of Māori and Pacifica culture that are not working optimally in a modern Western democracy? Well, I know two weeks ago in the political panel, Ginny Anderson got Gaslighter of the Week Award for claiming that there was not a lot of crime. The reality of it is, is just because the arrests haven't happened doesn't mean that the crime has stopped. Yeah, well, as Theodore Dalrymple, my favourite essayist, said, it's a common misconception among liberals that if there were more justice in the world, there'd be fewer people in prison. You know, there are a lot of people who are doing a lot of scroty, scummy things who are just walking free and they should be locked up. So the old Buttle, so he's got the imported Marxist American Frankfurt School explanation, system racist. So the 2017 article, which seems to have influenced the startled, surprised, and as a result, totally policy-free winners of the 2016 election, which was titled Transforming to a Prison-Free Society, Buttle wrote, successive governments seem to enthusiastically support the notion that prisons work. Proponents of incarceration often cite the following reasons for imprisonment. It reduces crime deterrence. It ensures the safety of the public, containment, and it reforms criminals so they become useful members of society, rehabilitation. But prisons do not work, and this has been established by academics as far back as the 70s. And no reference for that. Sighing last fact, as usual. No references, no data. Let's do this. So here we are. You know, the prison muster's down by 11% and crimes right up. And then he's got a little more final leap in of this triple jump of logical fallacy. Prisons do not work, have never worked, and will never work. They do not deter. They do not rehabilitate. And while they contain for a period of time, when that containment is finished, the released prisoner emerges a more damaged person, more liable to reoffend. Given this, 
Prison abolition is the only sane policy response because it is the only thing that has not been tried. Let's do this. See, there's no data there. He, that's a big leap to make, that no rehabilitation happens in prisons. Now, I've known people that work within corrections, within prisons, within rehabilitation. A lot of it does depend on the inmate. Yeah, of you how can't much... fill a bucket with a lid on it. Exactly. And there are inmates who are really motivated. They've actually had that holding cell feeling. It's gotten through the courts, they've landed up in the ultimate holding cell, and they're kind of like, yeah, no, this is not for me. And they get involved in the programs and, you know, there is actually good going on. Now, it's a pity that that actually has to happen in the prison system and doesn't actually happen in the social system, which I think both Mm. you and I would agree would be a better place for it. To actually claim that everyone that comes out of a prison is worse off is, I think, yeah, quite a leap. I think there are a number there that actually are quite happy with their current lot in life. And they it, it doesn't matter, with every will in the world, they're not going to want to change. I spoke to a woman who was a senior manager in corrections. She said, basically, there are some people who just need to be locked up until they're in the middle age. There's that band of criminality that goes from late teens to mid 40s, burgling houses and jumping over fences is a young man's game. And you just need to keep them locked up. Otherwise, they're going to get out and reoffend. One of the businesses that I worked in, actually, when I first came to the Bay many years ago, we used to employ prisoners on early release. Uh, and so they were bonded across to us to work for that period. And then they got a period of time off their sentence in doing so. So, you know, it was a really interesting crew of guys that would come across. But a lot of them relished the opportunity to leave prison and go straight into work Mm. and it kept them focused and it allowed the wraparound services once they left prison to actually get them into some good habits and move forward the one factor that i saw just in the two or three years that i was there two or three seasons that we did that it was always family if they had children and a supportive partner they were more likely to rehabilitate, re-enter society away from crime. That was the biggest factor. And that just, again, shows you the value and the importance of the integrity of the family, which, of course, all our little social justice ideologues would love to tear down at a moment's notice if they got half the chance. Work is is such a panacea to so many many things, isn't it? And my theory about prisons is... Do you have a theory on this? I've, I've got a theory on this. I think the most energetically nice way to deal with it is for all of society's solid waste stream to go into prisons and emerge pristinely sorted out. I'd like to see cars going in there with all the plastics that make it up sorted into their different categories, all the steels. I would like society's disorder to go through prisons and be ordered by people who are there for causing disorder in society. And I'd like for there to be a two-tier prison system where people can say, hey, I want to get better from this. And, you know, there have been proposals before to tie improvements in literacy and numeracy to reduce jail sentences. Got no problem with that at all. In fact, I think far better. I'd like for someone who's in jail Obviously, you know, it's difficult if someone's been murdered or something, but you could, you know, make a case to take to a parole. Hey, this guy's got a degree and he's done this and he's done that. How do you feel about this? Someone can bring order to chaos while they're in jail rather than just be in Mm -hmm. chaos. As for gangs ruling prisons, mate, you know, why can't we stop that? I think it comes back to that whole 
Governments love anything that makes people demand less freedom and more, more government. government. When exactly. was the last time you saw the cops turning up to a gang headquarters with those Chinese area denial weapons, the rocket launchers, the tear gas that they used on the protesters in Wellington? Doesn't happen. How come? Why are these government institutions segregated according to gangs? Here's a policy for Christopher Luxon. Get some way of imposing harsh penalties on anyone who tries to intimidate someone who leaves a gang. Make it easier to leave a gang. Anyone who threatens anyone, or you'd have to sort of have a way of doing it, but make it easier to de-gang the country. And when you look at those gangs, they are really just family replacements for so many of these, particularly youth. They go there because they have such a dysfunctional family life and it it replaces it for them. On crime, I picked up, um, there were two stories I picked up actually. One was the small dairy and takeaway that is about 50 metres away from the store that I have. Uh, So literally 50 metres down the road was ram raided and the poor guy had had a stroke the day before. So that happened on, I think, on last Friday. So I was really upset to hear about that. And then in the Weekend Herald, I think a couple of pages over from your article was one that I picked up, uh, Pack and Save Staff Packing Body Cam. Uh, Big practice intended to combat store crime and rising privacy concerns. So this is about Tauranga Pack and Save who are now using body cam technology that you usually see on law enforcement officers for the purposes of preventing crime and managing disorderly behaviour, the sign states when you enter the store. Crime in supermarkets and intimidation in supermarkets is rife. They're looking at using it as a preventative. So then people may think twice before wanting to walk out with their boatload of groceries. And as they said here, brazen thefts from supermarkets, such as people walking out with trolleys packed with stolen groceries, is now commonplace. Body cams are already in use by some hospital security frontline council workers, such as parking wardens, who have to deal with threats and abuse on the job. Prison offices in New Zealand wear body cams with strict policies around footage use, storage and access. Footage is kept for 90 days and prisoners can ask corrections to access the footage that includes them. Footage can be used for staff training and improve security, but also capture inappropriate conduct, criminal activity and can inform an investigation. I'm conflicted over body cams. I would hate to be in a store and have a security guard wandering around with a body cam filming my fat ass going down the aisles at Pack and Save. That wouldn't sort of thrill me. But at the same token, if that is going to make my experience while I'm at Pack and Save feel a bit safer not to see something untoward happen there and that is a non-violent way as opposed to arming security guards because this is where we're heading with the rate we're going well actually is that the lesser of two evils but again it comes down to do you trust them to look after that data what are they going to do with that data it's it is a conundrum Especially once you get to the checkout and you find that uh, your money card's not working because you've used your monthly quota of chocolate and red meat you yeah. drink <laughs> there's too many bottles of wine Put two back. I'd be doomed, mate. I'd be doomed. <laughs> they'd, they'd look at my vitamin C and they'd go, too much Chardonnay for you, pet. <laughs> well, you know that original crime story also had a quote from um, Dave Butterbean Latelli. Again, I've seen a theme on this. Māori are only allowed, and Pacifica are only allowed to say certain things that fit with the party line. So he was quoted saying, New Zealand needed to focus on big social issues such as housing, income equity, 
and education, as well as the intergenerational effects of colonialism and the loss of assets on Māori. You know, I thought, oh, really? Is that it? And I went back and I found a really good story about him. And I did write down who wrote it, sorry. Uh, it was in Stuff. This old man was the president of the Auckland Mungra Mob, served, serving prison, and he got to the Mungra Mob because when he was a kid to nice Seventh-day Adventist parents, he burned his primary school down. So he's made a state ward at nine. So, you know, I mean, I've spoken to plenty of Māori dudes who've been state wards and all sorts of bad stuff happened from that. There was a terrible legacy of it, not the least of which is our reluctance to create a child-referred system where kids can go and stay if they're unsafe at home. I think we urgently need that. We shouldn't think that we can't do it better than it was done. Well, Natalie is somebody who has done tremendous good in our community. Yeah, and if you look at why he's done good, he had an uncle, Ian, who became a high-flying businessman, chief executive of DFS and then restaurant brands, Latelli's family even briefly lived in Ian's Paratai Drive mansion. He had access to another way, okay? So he didn't have, okay, we're going to have to herd you over here with all these Māori and that's all you're going to hang out with because that's what you need. And he was taken out of destructive patterns of criminality. This is Dave himself. Criminality, ill health and underachievement by a mate who gave him stick basically for wasting away and forced some accountability of him on him. So he found Latelli living in country Australia at his lowest ebb, no passport, no money, and so out of shape he couldn't fit into the economy class seat. He picked me up and said, F, uh, recalls Latelli. He didn't realise how fat I got, how bad the condition I was in. So you can hear his uh, formula is personal accountability. So his formula for weight loss is, here's what I say to people, stop drinking fizzy drinks, go for a walk. That's the effing secret right there. It's simple. You don't have to go, oh, I'm like this because he no longer drinks, no longer takes drugs, doesn't go out in the evening, but home to his wife, Corrine. So personal responsibility, self-control, planning, action, stable, whānau life. Mm. There's your formula. And yet he makes that comment in the Herald, which in a way is is that him signalling virtue so they can leave him alone so he can get on to continue doing all the good work that he's doing in places like South Auckland and Tokoroa. You know, it's... Yeah, did they ask him a question and the, what he said came as if he'd volunteered it? Mm. But yeah, you know, we have to do that, but this, and that's what they got. And you know, the other thing that is very out of step with what we're told by the fat hinaki keepers like... New Zealand's Al Sharpton, Willie Jackson. Uh, you know, another factor in his success, he hangs out with successful Parker. Those are his mates. His main f- friendship group is the bunch of corporate types who do a pre-dawn boot camp with him near his West Auckland home, a group which includes Campbell, I'm not sure what his first name is, chairman of Sky City, who des- describes Latelli as just basically a hell of a good guy. To anyone outside, says Campbell, we don't look alike, but actually we have some things in common which are far more important. Those include, he says, struggles with depression, a shared view on what's fair, and a direct style of communication. These little bits that are sneaking in Mm. are contrary to that separatist agenda that's being pushed here, that divide and rule. You know, we should be aiming to be more than the sum of our parts. And also, too, this leads to the distrust in media. Because if you look at any of the work that Vitaly is doing, you know that it's good work. You know that he has got a formula. He is making it work. Positive changes are evident. And yet 
media is like, well, no, we can't have that. That's personal responsibility. That doesn't mm. that doesn't fit with the narrative. So how do we wokeify Dave enough so then that way he can pass with the likes of the great Hinaki keepers, like our friend Willie, and he doesn't fall foul of the cancellation brigade. It is just sad. He likes getting stuff done far yeah. too much to fall for yeah. it. And he's probably seen just the steady stream of, of people who uh, want to get some of the stardust on them, posing for photos with him, and he's probably felt a bit of disgust for them, mm. I would guess, because I've seen plenty of that. Um, there's another story, Making Auckland Māori Again, which is about uh, Māori artist Graham Tippany, and it's the same thing. You know, you just hear this the angry kind of um, victim-y part of it where he's saying uh, uh, he, um, where is it? Yeah, so, so he's sort of hoping that, um, that uh, you know, his tāmoko has made him feel more accountable. And he said that the challenge is, you know, perhaps, then perhaps his partner won't be approached by a stranger in an airport who, noticing that she had arrived with two tattooed men, uh, waited until they were at the counter checking a ticket before approaching to ask if she was okay. Her response, I was okay till you came over here. It was weird, says Tiffany graciously. And I read that and I thought, that's capricious. You know, just someone's checking you're okay and you've got to snap back at them. And then I read to the end of the story, and I realised I've been friends with that woman for over 25 years. She's uh, the sister of one of my dearest friends who I flattered with for three years. She is a little bit like that because she's, a, you know, she's a sassy lady, but that's not all of her. Reading this, I got one, one idea about her that, you know, kind of fits with my uh, uh, total understanding of her, but isn't the total understanding mm-hmm. of her. But you, you read down and, and he says, if my tipuna wanted to have a relationship with the newcomers, then who am I to shit on that relationship now? I am to maintain the hopes and dreams of my ancestors by making sure I do right by them, and then in turn doing right by our kids and the future generations so that my grandkids can walk forward with all these other kids and go, yeah, we're united and thought we're equals. Amen, Graham. Couldn't agree more. You know, that's the direction. You know, I've met a lot of uh, tamoko um, and, and carvers. Man, they have got mana. Mm. You know, they're quiet. They don't have the... They don't tend to have the ego. They just yeah. want to get on with doing what they're doing. Yeah, yeah mm. it's real mana. Well, mm. let's segue and a little bit now into Māori politicians. Um, Tori Fano, Tori Fano, the Mayor of Wellington. We have Wayne Brown in Auckland. I see Stuff took a swipe at him, didn't invite mm. Stuff to the press conference. Whereas Tori Fano, well, I mean, she just doesn't turn up to anything, really. According to this, uh, she's been facing scrutiny for absence at civil events and meetings, including a meeting of the Regional Mayor's Forum. But the Mayor thinks her focus and attendance is undue. I'm a young wahine Māori. I am progressive and unapologetically so. It's a shame, but it's from a minority, and I'm still excited about the outpouring of support that I've received from the community. I'm 40, I'm single, I love our hospitality scene and every couple of weeks I love to head out with my mates and hit a couple of bars and there's certainly nothing wrong with that, she told the News Hub Nation. There is nothing wrong with that, darling, but as long as it doesn't stop you from doing your job and attending meetings. It'd be such a flex for her just not to say, oh, it's misogyny and racism and just say, yeah, that's kind of what I do. Uh, 
yeah, I'm working on getting better. I love the job. You know, it was really surprising when that story was on The Nation, how I was kind of braced because the panel was uh, the anemic-looking blonde lady who fronts it and, and Andrea Vance and the chairman of Fano Aura, I think it was, and they didn't give her the free pass I was braced for. The lady who's the uh, chairperson of Fano Aura said, you know, it's um, it's telling when someone hasn't served on council before they're, they're a mayor. Andrea Vance basically called it out for the squid ink that it is, you know, mm. obscuring the facts with charging people with an intent of racism or misogyny rather than just, hey, you know, we're in the crap as a as a city, there's a lot of work to do and you don't seem that serious about doing the job that we really need done well if we're going to have a bright future. Mm, absolutely. Uh, the only other things I'm going to skip over in politics, and I don't really want to spend a lot of time on them, but as you know, there's been lots of um, toing and froing and flip-flopping around national and policy, and I think I mean, we've said it before, duff hands. There's a lot of distraction going on, lots and lots of distraction. There is actually quite a good piece in the Sunday Star Times about uh, a battle on the right for the Tarnaki seat, which has been a safe seat for National Simon O'Connor, but ex-Brook Van Velden is also standing in that seat. The only thing I would say if you're wanting to vote on that side of the political fence is be warned, because if you've got two strong candidates, uh, that can actually open the door. For something, the correct day. Yes, absolutely. And Andrea Vance's underestimate David Seymour at your peril. And it's been intriguing, actually. There's been talk across the weekend around the support around the country. Both David Seymour and Chris Luxon have been doing roadshows around the country. Luxon was recently in Taranaki and with a very well subscribed meeting there. A lot of people are turning out, and the media are quite shocked by this that all these people are actually turning up to hear these politicians speak. Racist and misogynist. Uh, No, actually, mainly Pākehā crowd is what they said for the Taranaki meeting. Actually, media, do you actually think that the reason these people are going to hear these politicians is because you haven't been telling them what these politicians have to say. So they actually have to get out of the Lazy Boys, turn off the Netflix, pop themselves in the Toyota Corolla, down to the local community centre and actually listen to them for themselves. Yeah, shocker. Yes, that's democracy. There was a really interesting little mischievous thing I saw on Facebook, uh, which was John Ansell of the Kiwi versus Iwi Don Brash National 2005 campaign, maybe, asked, uh, Christopher Luxon at a meeting and, and filmed it and put it on Facebook. If you could satisfy yourself that fluoride in the water was causing a, a 7% drop in IQ in young children and that the vaccines were neither safe or effective and that um, the treaty did not prescribe co-governance, would you change your policy? And he just said no to a bunch of audience members clapping their hands like, seals clapping the flippers it seemed lost on them if you found a different set of facts available to you would you change your policy accordingly no very telling Mm. who would say that now before i dive into culture have you got anything else on your little list that we want to cover off looking at the themes in the paper and the media generally over the past week or so there's a real effort, and I know we talk about menticide, and one of the methods of menticide that all these shadowy 
government agencies, the Tavistock Institute, Project Monarch, all that sort of stuff have arrived at is that if you want to basically get someone to behave the way you want, stress that's periodic is far more powerful than continual stress. So, uh, and, and each successive bit of stress has a faster and more extreme effect. And you can really feel everyone trying to tr- keep the men's side up on women and, and really sort of the women are where the uh, elections at. You know, I saw um, old Fran O'Sullivan, I think it was, women's work shouldn't be the cleaning up. National must now show commitment to gender issues. I think New Zealand women must show a bit more commitment to facts and understanding of what's actually been done to them. Women need to reclaim women. Yeah. And I mean, the interesting thing that I've always found, if I'm around a group of people who see through what's happening in terms of just the lack of commitment to truth and the brainwashing and men's side, is, yeah, the women are, are, are all very feminine, which doesn't mean weak. It doesn't mean unintelligent. They're highly intelligent, highly capable, but they've got a softness about them that stimulates the best bits of masculinity. It's, it is... Almost an environment where you find gender roles returned. And, and women often say to me in those environments, where are the men? Well, yeah, the men, that whole process has been a lengthy one, hasn't it, of getting men just to think about their own pleasure and and away from their families. It's been a long run. There is some brouhaha in the last day or two around principals and those within the social justice communities who are very, very upset that a number of young men and boys particularly are creating, even in some cases, their own little Andrew Tate clubs to watch video content on Andrew Tate claiming that this is toxic masculinity and teaching young men misogyny. Look, I've watched a few of this guy's videos. I mean, he's a twat. The way you talk when you don't have kids. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he's, yeah. you know, he, he's a guy who's living his best life with his fast car. He's screwing a, a multitude of women and he fell foul of his people in Romania. He is also unashamed about is the fact that he's a male and he's not afraid to say that he's a male and he, and he hates all of this kind of stuff. I'm not going to stop my sons expressing who they are as young men. And their desire to become top Gs. Yeah. I think when you suppress this in men, and this is what has been with the over-feminisation in our education system, I think that there are a lot of young men now out there in their 20s and 30s who are actually suffering from the stripping of power and helplessness that they felt through that education portion. So I'm certainly not going to do that. Well, I heard a really interesting stat uh, this morning. If you're in the bottom 50% of attractiveness in men, you've got to, if you're on a dating app, you've got to swipe 200 times before you get a match. So you imagine what it's like being one of those guys. Mm. I think and now you know why identitarianism has become so powerful and popular, because if you are one of those guys, those are the guys that are identifying often as genderqueer in order to liberate themselves or find themselves some inclusion within a group that will elevate them because right. normal women will just go yeah you're you're, you're a nice you're, you're a good friend <laughs> they put them permanently <laughs> in the friend zone you know yeah I, I think you're right i mean it gives them the opportunity to feel desirable yeah um you know you get to wear frilly underwear rather than just your, your old kicks okay i can see the appeal I understand it. 
Yeah. Actually, there was speaking of that with you, which you were bringing up with young women and women taking things back. There was a piece. It was actually a book extract. And she turns it over. Uh, Herald on Sunday, and it was actually written by a woman called Brittany Ferrance Smith, and it was around eating disorders. And it's the first time that I've seen something on an eating disorder with women for ages, because of course mm. these gender issues is what. Yeah. has now taken what over. Making them mentally ill lately rather Exactly. Than... And she talks about her experiences, but one of the biggest thing was around the stigma and the social cues and expectations placed on, that she felt placed on her at her age, particularly when she was at university. I read this article and I thought, well, you could actually replace every single thing that she said in this article in reference to weight and anorexia and replace it with identity and gender. Yeah. And you've got exactly the same story. And women are particularly susceptible to this. So if you've got daughters out there heading to university, um, it is certainly something to watch out for. But I thought it was a very good piece. The book is called Living Full, A Guide to Overcoming an Eating Disorder. And as I said, I think a lot of the tools that she will have, I can almost guarantee a lot of the tools that she has in there to overcoming an eating disorder will actually help you overcome a lot of this critical social justice and critical theory Mind if you worried about your weight, just use the Dave Latelli method. Mm. Stop drinking fizzy drinks and go for a walk. That's the effing secret right there. It's terrible seeing kids put into this short-term thinking despair about the future. And it's you know what's even more terrible about it? It's deliberate. Mm. And once you once you cross that realization, I mean, I used to have these conversations with my old man, you know, saying, "Well, it'd be easy enough to find out who." You know, whether it's jabbed people getting heart problems, you know, they'd be able to break the data down. I used to say to them, it's quaint that you're thinking about this as a public health issue still, rather than a neo-feudalist um, you know, depopulation yeah. issue or whatever. Yeah. Once you get that idea, man, this is not accidental. We know they are lying. They know they are lying. They know that we know they are lying. We know that they know we know they are lying, and still they continue to lie. Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Yeah. A couple of other cultural things that I just wanted to touch on briefly. One was the Ruby Tui debate over the wheat bix trading cards. Talk about a storm in a teacup. So if you haven't caught up with that, the wheat bix in Sanitarium are looking at putting the black ferns and trading cards in the wheat bix packs. Great, world champions, why wouldn't you? Brilliant idea. Ruby Tui, though, will only be on her card if she gets to put a rainbow flag on her card. Ruby, darling, mm. this is a trading card for you as a rugby player. It's got nothing to do with your lesbianism, sweetie. And remember, you forget who owns Sanitarium. So all this is, is you are making a mountain out of a molehill in order to press an agenda in Pride Week. No, Ruby, you get back to being a rugby player, darling, because that is what you are. You are a role model for young women. As a sportswoman, not as a lesbian. You just happen to be a lesbian. I really don't care. And I don't think the girls really care who you sleep with love. Like yeah, well, a couple of layers to that. Firstly, who cares about, yeah, what your sexual preferences are? I mean, there's just that ongoing uneasiness I have about that creepy interest in children's sexuality. Mm. And, and that's what people's objection is, this creepy kind of... And, I mean, that interview you did with the lady last week about oh, how totally unqualified those inside-out people are, how getting oh, these Kuno, yeah. are, hey, you might actually be a girl. Man. You know, it's amazing 
how little understanding parents have got about what's going on. I had a conversation uh, the weekend with one of my, my son's friends' mums, and she was saying, oh, you know, my boy's, you know, coming home and saying, oh, I want to do harder maths. And so I wrote a letter to the school, but I haven't heard back, and they're getting him to um, teach other kids maths, and so he's not really learning. And I told her about that Massey study that my kid's school was involved in, you know, and if you look it up, these Massey academics, the first word's equity, mm. and it's saying mathematics is a major driver of inequality. So if we push, you know, the people at the top down, maybe they'll help bring the bottom up and equity. And uh, she was horrified. And I said to her, well, you know, my total disgust with the school came at the school play where they got a girl to play Sir Edmund Hillary. And she said, well, what's wrong with that? And I said to her rather more sharply than I, I expected, you know, the stuff you're what's wrong with that about is connected to the, oh, we'll get your boy who's good at maths to teach other kids maths to bring him down and bring them up. They're connected. Mm -hmm. So speaking of maths, this I got sent this by somebody who's currently studying maths through Massey University. Uh, it was as part of a calculus uh, segment. The lesson always starts with a quote at the beginning of the lesson before they go into it. And this is the lesson. You ready? My success is not mine. It comes from the collective. Nothing like a bit of Marxism with mm. your mathematics, eh? Yeah. That is, that's Massey. That's what they're teaching them at Massey. Yeah, it's crazy. The last piece that I've got that I just want to touch on, um, Charlie Mitchell, the post, you again, uh, yes, the post, and it was around what we we're talking about, this, this this sort of creepy sexualization with kids. So I've talked obviously about the Bud Light situation, then of course Target with the pride tuckable children's uh, swimsuits. Well, here there is a Pride Rainbow collection which has been sold through Warehouse and there's been a little bit of a local boycott of sorts here as well against Warehouse. Now Charlie, um, I'm going to read the headline in the first sentence and this will tell you everything you need to know for where our Charlie sits. Cancellation campaign targeting New Zealand companies. A conspiracy influencer headed for the Warehouse to speak to the manager. Conspiracy okay. influencer. A conspiracy hey, influencer. And so what's happening is that there is a Disney collection that's been sold by the warehouse. The proceeds from certain products uh, go to the Rainbow Charity Inside Out. Now, I had this conversation just before with Helen, just before we came on. I dived into the Pride Kit for schools, which in, in Inside Out have the contract to provide Pride curriculum into the schools this coming week. But mm. you know what really annoys me? This is a gigantic grift from Inside Out. They had uh, multiple fundraising efforts as part of Pride Week. Now they claim, they claim that it was quite harmless. We support many incredible charities, uh, say the Warehouse, including Youth Line Salvation Army, Variety, Life Education, Inside Out, and they all do great work for our Kiwi families. Too true. However, Inside Out are been, have been targeting Kiwi kids through schools, plus through this, they're already well funded. So where's the money going? I'd love to know. Black Lives Matter. 
Yeah, I'd love to know where all this money is going. Meanwhile, uh, the Inside Out Managing Director, Tabby Beasley, says, for the last few months, we've been receiving hateful communications either via social media, email or phone on almost a daily basis, whereas this used to be incredibly rare. No examples of this, by the way. So we don't know what hateful is. Is hateful just, hey, we don't actually agree with what you're doing. Can you please stop or can you please, please explain? It could be as simple as that. Even if they don't take hold in New Zealand, the attempted cancellations have an impact. Now, she uses the word cancellations. Charlie used the word cancellation in his headline. These are not cancellations, people. These are boycotts. There is a difference. Mm. A boycott is where you and I, Mr. and Mrs. Consumer, look at something and go, yeah, no, actually, I'm not going to take part in that. Um, I'm going to keep my dollar in my pocket and spend it elsewhere. That is a boycott. A cancellation is personal. A cancellation is when you smear an individual or a group to the point that you want to bring down and tear down that group. Mm. It's quite a different beast. But by using cancellation... Yeah, exactly. And I know all about it because been there, done that, have mm. the T-shirt. Uh, it absolutely makes it harder to go to work not knowing if there's going to be abuse on the other end of the line if you pick up the phone. But we are focused to continuing su- to support our communities across Aotearoa to feel safe and belonging, says Beasley. Where is, yeah. I'd love to see the evidence of this. I really would. It's just amazing how much of it is there. And, and you know, that, that, you know, I could bring in an Andrew Tate quote myself here. It says, you know, the West don't care about anything. The only thing they'll protest about is gay rights or trans rights. They don't care about kids not learning to read. They don't care about people busily starting World War Three because I don't want to play on their chessboard. You know, it's interesting to think, well, what am I not reading about in the paper that's a real big story? One of the things I pulled out was just the number of women in the paper either talking about infertility, like Nano Girl and the Herald on Sunday. Well, you know, she seems like a lovely person. She's no Susie Wells, but still drank a fair amount of the Kool-Aid, trying to have kids at 35 and couldn't. I had a search and, I mean, there was the Bachelorette also complaining about being dumped after 18 months and saying that men were uncaring about female pleasure because of misogyny and yeah then there was nano girl and there are a few accidental mentions of New Zealand's plummeting fertility rates which actually were at replacement rates of 2.1 per woman back as recently as 2014 but they're now at very very low rate of 1.6 just nine years later and there's nothing I had a look on um a search for Sir Ashley Bloomfield giving a crap about it and it yielded nothing just Vax, 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 like like Fauci, you know, his overarching concern was primarily injecting experimental gene therapy into every man, woman, child and fetus. You know, this is doing the search, monotonous series of articles from Stats New Zealand heralding another lowest year of childbirth. And this incredible quote in a stuff article from a fertility specialist, this was a couple of years old, mind, because this was all I could find. But this was an obstetrics and gynecology professor at the University of Auckland, Dr. Michelle Wise. And this is what the, the, the learned professor said about our tumbling fertility rate. There's a lot of population experts and environment and climate change experts who might suggest we have a population overgrowth problem and having fewer children might not be a bad thing looking at a finite amount of resources. And, you know, when you read stuff like that and you realise 
there's this, it's almost like we're in a death cult. Yeah. And, and there's a profoundly anti-human agenda at play. Who has an anti-human agenda? What sort of human would have an, an anti-human agenda? It makes you wonder, doesn't it? Yeah, well, I, I mentioned to you before we went on air, actually, Talking about this exact issue, Paul Brennan interviewed Stephen Shaw. Now, he is the documentary writer and filmmaker who made a documentary called Birth Gap, Why the Global Birth Rate is Collapsing. That interview is on our replays, so just go to realitycheck.radio. Yeah, definitely go and check that out. Check the interview out, check the documentary out. And as he said, there is a misconception out there that the birth rate, it's important that birth rates drop in order to protect and preserve resources. He's actually blowing that idea up and the birth rate is dropping and it is something that is quite, I think is actually quite terrifying. Now, not necessarily for you and I, because I don't think we're going to be around to worry about this, but it's certainly concerning for our children and them moving forward. But it is one of many, many things for us to keep an eye out. Now, anyone out there, if you have any feedback that you want to give Marty and I, or if you've got a lead on a story that you want us to check out uh, for Media Matters, do send us a text 2057 or email us at inbox at Thank you again, Marty. So much to talk about, so little time. Well, isn't it funny how it's got to that? I'd add to what you're saying, though. If you're reading this and you're outraged with the stuff we're we're saying, send us that as well. I'm really interested to hear, because as I've said before and as I'll keep saying, I'm not here so much insisting that my opinions are right. My opinions are just my opinions and the way I think about the data that I'm seeing. What I'm interested in is having the debate. Mm. And we're coming out of a period where this debate has been blocked by the media, it's been blocked by the academia, it's been blocked by the government, it's been blocked by the medical council, you name it. So it's really important that we start having these discussions in good faith. Absolutely. Um, Inbox at realitycheck.radio or text to 2057. Don't disappear. The vocabulary word of the week is still to come here on Counterculture on RCR. Have a great week, everybody. It's time for the Vocabulary Word of the Week. The vocabulary are words and phrases that have been hijacked by those who are steeped in the world of critical social justice. The word to watch out for this week, violence. The meaning of violence is to use physical force so as to injure, abuse, damage or destroy. Or so we thought. Violence is now defined by the World Health Organization, WRVH, as the intentional use of physical force or power, threatened or actual, against oneself, another person, or against a group or community that either results in or has a high likelihood of resulting in injury, death, psychological harm, maldevelopment or deprivation. This Machiavellian word manipulation is now allowed ideologies to claim things like silence is violence, using wrong pronouns could be constructed as an act of violence, or hurting someone's feelings could be perceived as violent. I'm sticking with sticks and stones may break my bones, but I will not allow words to hurt me. (laughs) 
Thank you for joining me this week for another dose of counterculture. Keep your feedback coming to inbox at realitycheck.radio or drop us a text, send your comment to 2057. Peter Williams is up here next on RCR with an insightful commentary and even more great music. You've been listening to Counterculture with Marie Busky on RCR, RCR. Reality Check Radio. Radio. Radio.